Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for This Week in Photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWIP. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial, go to Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. This week on TWIP, it's our 200th episode and the boys are back in town. The original Super Friends reassemble, plus there's much ado about video and an interview with photographer David Sizer. It's Saturday, May 7, 2011, and this is Twitch. Welcome back to This Week in Photo, your weekly helping of photographic inspiration. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. This is a very special show. This is our 200th episode. 200 weeks. Holy crap. 200 weeks of this week in photo. Do you guys believe that? And I, so we brought the boys back in town for this. And we were going to have Alex Lindsay, but he, I think he got abducted by aliens. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the aliens will finish their probing and let him go so he can join the show. <laughs> but until that happens, we've got Aaron Mailer, Scott Bourne, and Ron Brinkman. Hey, guys. Howdy. Hello. This is uh, this is a magical show. This is like the this is like the Super Friends huddling at the ju- the, the Justice League or something. <laughs> Wait a minute. Why don't you Why don't you just welcome Alex and I'll play his part? Oh no, no, we can't have that. You would just say welcome, and then he would go, "Hey there." Yeah, there you say, go. I was wondering which which Alex uh, trait you were going to take over there. No, <laughs> actually, Alex would be here, but he and I have been busily planning a race between a Bugatti Veyron and a. F-22 strike fighter. What? All right. I was just trying to Define. tell the story, all right? I'm trying to protect the guy. We Good had word. to do this like very first twip, too. Alex Alex does not deserve any protection. Whatever <laughs> It's the aliens. I mean, if the aliens got him, then that's understandable. Anything other than aliens coming down with the probe, you know. Listen, you better be able to prove there was a probe, too. I want to see don't evidence. Don't on my little buddy too hard. He's got a lot of irons in the fire. Yes, he does, yeah. as we all do. And we don't know why Steve Simon's not on, right? We don't know. We don't think know. think he's in Dubai. We, he's traveling somewhere doing stuff that we should be doing. You know? Yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> the photography thing. They're, they're here in spirit. Yes, they are here in spirit. All right. Uh, before we continue, uh, this episode, episode 200, is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. And as we've been saying on the show for the last several episodes... Squarespace is that site that's easy to use. You create uh, websites or blogs. You can optimize it, or you can create basically the back end of this thing is optimized so that if you have no idea how to put a site on the web, you can get in and get one up and running really quickly. Or if you're one of those people that lives and breathes CSS or even knows what the acronym CSS stands for, you can get in there and tweak that stuff and get it to look exactly how you want it to. The magic of it is it's all in, quote, the cloud. So you're not hosting anything locally. You're not putting it on your own FTP server. Squarespace handles all that stuff for you. They've got a bunch of templates to choose from. 
and you can customize those templates. So you can use them as a starting point. So you find one that you like and then tweak it, put your logo, all that stuff on there. And then you can integrate things like blogs, forums, Flickr, Twitter, Google Maps, all that stuff into the Squarespace experience. And, uh, you know, you're good to go. So you can sign up for Squarespace, um, get a 14 day free trial for everyone, or you can go month to month after that free trial. So you don't even need to commit and you can get 10% off of a one year commitment after that trial or 20% off, 20% off discount after a two year commitment. So just head over to squarespace.com slash twip to sign up for your free account. You don't need a credit card. You can try it out, build your website, tweak it, get it how you like it. If you want to keep it, go ahead and, and kick off with one of those, those one or two year agreements. And if you don't want to keep it, just let it go and no harm, no foul. That's squarespace.com forward slash T-W-I-P. All right, guys, let's, uh, let's chat about what everyone's been up to. Number one I want to talk to is a guy that hasn't been on the show since, I don't know, the earth was cooling. Scott Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Bourne, where, where have you been? What have you been doing? I know you're doing your podcast. You're all over the world. You've been moving, buying houses, selling out. What is going on? What's Scott Bourne's, what's, what's your, your elevator's pitch right now in time? At the basis of it all, I'm still taking pictures. Uh, I'm just doing it in a warmer, sunnier spot. I moved to Las Vegas. All right. Nicholas Cage. I, I got tired of Seattle, uh, which has only two seasons, rain and road construction. Uh-oh. Um, and uh, I'm living in Vegas. It's very nice, easy to get to every place from here. I'm four hours from the Grand Canyon, three hours from Zion, four and a half hours from the ocean. Uh, not bad. And uh, I'm working on Photofocus, of course, every day. I got a thing called Going Pro. Just, our book is about to come out finally from Random House. It'll be uh, on the bookshelves uh, either this summer or first of fall. And then I have a brand new site, 3exposure.com. I'm working on with our buddy Rich Harrington, Red Pixel. Awesome. Yeah, Rich is a, is a good friend of the show. So you're also very close to the Hoover Dam out there. I know you, I can you must be there go in 30 out there minutes. all yeah. the time to take pictures of the Hoover Dam, don't you, Scott? Come on. Well, actually, more often to ride around on a boat on Lake Mead. But, you know, it's uh, it's nice to see the dam and... It's a beautiful area out here, and it's very inexpensive. There's a lot of photo stuff happening. I saved myself 19 or 18 airplane rides by not having to fly here to speak at conferences. I can just get in my car and go. So, That's no. awesome. Well, you know, you are now a neighbor of one of my favorite people on the planet. My dad, Tom yeah. Johnson, lives out there in Las Vegas. So yeah, yeah, and, I have to chat with him. We'll have to get together at the M Resort for ice cream. Yeah, he lives very close to the M Resort, so we'll uh, we'll all go out there, and you get to meet the original Van. So he's Thomas Van Johnson, <laughs> <laughs> and I am. You know, I'm just a, a reasonable copy. So <laughs> there you go. You're a reasonable facsimile. Reasonable facsimile thereof. All right. Also on the show is Mr. Aaron Mailer. Also. Uh, I think the Earth was cool by the time you came on the show, but <laughs> it, it, it might have been the Jurassic period. So what's yeah? It's what's been a going while. What's going on here? Um, life's uh, I'd say pretty much the same. Just really, really busy. Um, incredibly busy, actually. My as a lot of listeners know, my main job is not full time as a photographer, but as a network sysadmin for a small college in Virginia at Sweetbriar College. And that's uh, been keeping me really tied up in the last year as we've made a whole lot of changes in our system out here, which has been a lot of fun for me as a geek. Um, but I'm constantly doing photography, either event work or for hire or just personal stuff. And uh, 
as as you know, I'm, I'm actually planning a trip here at the end of this month for the first time. I've always wanted to get out to the Pacific Northwest, so I'm going to go up to uh, to Washington State and travel all up around the uh, the Olympic National Forest up there. Oh. And then uh, during uh, WWDC, the Developers Conference for Apple, I'll be down in San Francisco. So I know you and I have some plans already for dinner. Yep, yep, we're definitely so, hooking uh, up. So those tickets are gone. Normally when they open up the WWDC conference for, for purchasing tickets, they go in like a day or two, right? They were gone in, in half a day. Oh. Oh, so I didn't crazy. have time to start making arrangements for it before I found out it was sold out. So, but that's cool. And you what know, do, what do those tickets stuff. run, Aaron? What just what? Uh, if you're a developer, I don't. They maybe somewhere in the twelve hundred dollar range, that's something insane. like that. That's insane. That's insane. You've also got uh, you know room and board and flights and a million other expenses. So it's not a cheap endeavor, but it's well worth it. Yeah, yeah. If you want to make money selling apps, you know, definitely. Yep, definitely. Cool. And then also on the show is Mr. Ron. Brinkman, who's down in Hermosa Beach working for the man, right, Ron? I'm working for me because I am the man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. What have yeah, you, you been up to, man? Uh, still doing uh, a lot of little a little stuff. I mean, some consulting work and uh, working on a couple projects that are not worth mentioning yet, so I shan't. Uh-oh. And, um, but, yeah, you know, still getting a little photography here and, here and there. I went you to know, Hawaii. Uh, you know, Ron, Ron, you can mention your projects. You know, porn sites are, you know, they're really, <laughs> they, they really bring innovation to the Internet. You know, you know it's some all of the, photography. trailblazers. <laughs> it's all photography. Where would the Internet be without porn? Where would, where would photography be with porn? You know, I'm just saying, you know, they were the first to distribute video. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's cool. So things are going well down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very so I, cool. I went to Hawaii a uh, weekend before last for a little little getaway. Took some pictures. You know, that's a that's a good looking place out there. Hawaii. Yeah, I heard. I heard it. It's not bad. <laughs> you, you want to bring a camera when you go. It's on yeah, the list. Done that. Where did you go? Where did you go in Hawaii? Just, just to Oahu. But you know, even if you go to Oahu for a quick trip, you know, if you get away from. Uh, the city and get out to the uh, the fringes of the island. Uh, it's, there's still some just gorgeous stuff out there. Wow, that's awesome. That's very cool. Hey Scott, what uh, what are you shooting now? I mean, remember last year? Was it the year before? There was a big hubbub about you switching. First, you switched from Canon to Nikon in mass, and then you switched from Aperture to Lightroom. I think no, 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 no. Or did no, you go no. the other way? Go I didn't switch to Lightroom. I merely agreed to add it to my workflow. Oh, okay. And, so, and then I promptly removed it from my workflow because I'm just too stuck in the Aperture way of doing things. And plus, with the Aperture 3X rollout, uh, it became really perfect for me. Uh, I do a lot of video. You can actually edit video in Aperture. You can't, as I understand it, in Lightroom. No, you can't. Um, but uh, I am using Adobe products. I've uh, switched to Premiere Pro and After Effects and all that really? for my video. The new 5.5 is all, all awesome. Better than um, Final Cut? Oh, it just, it's, you know, that's that's like asking if Alex Rodriguez is better than me at baseball. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not even the same category um but i'm sh i actually did switch again on the camera side are you ready for this oh sony right no sony? that's not ever gonna happen uh, <laughs> I, I uh i switched to both i now oh. shoot nikon and canon and it's my favorite thing when the trolls call me a blank fanboy pick canon or nikon because i happen to talk about them i can say yeah that's why i got five of those other ones wow so, so we can so both so we can we can sort of call you by now then, right? <laughs> as long as I can't reach you. <laughs> well, you're in Vegas now, so you can't reach me. So Scott, is there? I mean, is there a situation where you'll grab one or the other? I mean, what's, yeah, what's, what's your, kind of your top go-to cameras? 
Okay, so um, I shoot the D3S when it's when it's low light situations because it mm-hmm. outperforms the the one D Mark IV in yeah. low light. Um, uh, sometimes it's lens dependent. I happen to think the new Canon seventy to two hundred f two eight ISL version two lens is the sharpest zoom lens in the world. Mm-hmm. And if I can use that lens, I'll use the Canon. Um, I'll use the Canon when I need the eight hundred f five six L because Nikon doesn't make an eight hundred. Um, I'll use the Nikon when I need the two to four hundred because Canon doesn't yet ship theirs. Uh, it just depends. And when I was shooting video on HDSLRs, uh, the Canon was superior. Now, since the Nikon D seven thousand came out, I actually shoot that camera for video quite a bit. I think mm-hmm. that's a great little camera. Love it, love it. Yep. But I've uh, I've I've ended up kind of moving into real video cameras now for my video, so that that's less important. Yeah, yeah. Why and why that switch? I, I've heard that from from other photographers as well. Is it because of the 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 sensors heat up and the camera shuts down after a certain amount of time, or or what? It's just that once you realize that the real big claim to fame on the HDSLRs is the ability to interchange lenses and to get the really shallow depth of field like with a 51.2, once you realize that you don't need that shot in every video, mm-hmm. then you realize, okay, I will shoot that shot with that camera when I need it. And the rest of the time, I'll just go with something that's predisposed to work better in a video situation. And uh, Canon's new video cameras uh, are just freaking amazing. Um, and and the quality is so very good that it's just easier. They're all set up and ready to go. They take XLR microphones. They you know they have zebras. They have built-in neutral density filters. They have peaking. So all the things you'd need in a real video environment already built into a real video camera, whereas it's always a kludge on an HDSLR. So when I need to shoot an 800 millimeter lens for video, I do throw it on the Canon. And when I do need a 51.2, I throw it on the Canon. But the rest of the time, I'm shooting with a video camera. That's interesting. We need to get you, I would love to get you and, you know, some of the folks on that, that are leading the charge with regard to video, maybe even Rich, maybe you and Rich, we should, you know, do a show with you guys or come on your show or something. The book that I helped him with is the number one book in the category from Still the Motion. I love that. I love that. I have that book on my shelf right now. That's the number one seller in the category, and Rich and I are doing those kinds of projects all the time. I mean, he's the one that actually helped me figure some of this out along with, you know, Alex. And I've been around a lot of video people my whole life. I'm still careful to say I am not a filmmaker. No, but, uh, why, but what are you shooting, Scott, in particular? Because, like, what I, what I talk about on the show, I mean, but what <laughs> of the – like, on the show, we're like – you to be multidisciplinary, if that's the word, you know, it it takes a lot. You can be an expert still photographer and never master it till you get in your grave, you know. And now right. you're adding another facet onto that video with all the audio and storage right. and yeah. post and premiere and final all After Effects. It's hard. Well, so it's what? Hard. But what do you do? What what makes it worth it to to I, extend yourself in that direction? My clients have started to ask for video. That's number one. Number two, I'm working on a couple of television shows, so I'm providing some B-roll for them. So I'm getting paid. That's that's the impetus. I'm getting paid. But the other side of it is it expands – believe it or not, it expands my ability as a still photographer because I once you learn how to do it with video too, it opens up your eyes to new ways of thinking. Like in still photography, we think about a moment in time. And in video, you think about lots of moments put together on a storyboard, and it helps you 
tell a story. And then I, I take that and translate that back to still photography. And, you know, I still consider myself a still photographer when it comes to video. I consider myself, you know, maybe a, a, a second director of photography. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't be a, a filmmaker because that's a skill I just don't have. I've met some real filmmakers. My hat's off to it. My friend Vince Laforet is a filmmaker. I'm just a guy that can operate the camera. But I still find it interesting and challenging. That's part of it. Like I was up in Alaska for two weeks uh, last month photographing eagles and watching them come and dive and get the fish and over and over and over and then being able to play that in video and slow-mo it and all that kind of stuff. It does give you a perspective the stills don't. Now, I got some great stills, and I'm happy with those too. But you know, each has a role to play for me. Awesome. And Ron Brinkman, you're you're not in that video camp at all right now, right? You don't or do you shoot any video? No, no, I, I really don't. I mean, other than just this is an interesting kind of moment. I wouldn't mind getting a little bit of throwaway video on it, but no, I'm not shooting anything that's sort of uh yeah. I for me video has always been something that when I do it it's it's it has been a work related thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, like we, photography like, is, you know, still pretty much just a hobby sort of thing. Yeah, it's like when you when you look at the the point and shoot cameras that that shoot quote HD video, you know, or or decent video now, it's great, and you're like capturing all these cool moments. But then, what do you do with that video? Well, that's you know? just it. You know, it's there's already a, a, enough time spent in post production, if you will, when you're shooting stills, right? Yeah. And I really think that to do any kind of decent job with post-production on video, it's it's an order of magnitude more. You know, you've really got to, you can't just have clips then. You've got to edit something together. And, you know, realistically, you've got to spend time doing a good edit and you've got to spend time doing good audio uh, and ideally some kind of music. I mean, to put together a piece that is decent in video, it's a, it's a commitment. And it's just sort of, for me, that would almost go from being, you know, a fun hobby to being work. Yeah. Now, Aaron, you and I spent some time roaming around Washington D.C. taking photos and all that. And if there's any place in the country that's that that's worthy of shooting some dramatic video, it's going to be downtown D.C. You know, yeah, or at least in certainly. some areas, let's say. So, are you is is that on your list of things that you want to get better at shooting video, or is it uh, you know I've, just kind I've of on the periphery? Work in the, I've done video work in the past, and part of the reason I bought a 5D Mark II is I wanted to open those doors again. I've always had a love of editing. Uh, video editing. Now, I'm not making any claims here that I'm any kind of pro at it by any means, but it's just as a creative outlet, I find it really exciting. So still photography is still you know, where my heart is for the most part, but I'm doing more and more with video. In fact, I did a series of short films uh, for a project here at the college uh, back last winter and early this spring, and I uh, had a blast with it. Um, yeah. and, and I agree completely with what Scott said a few minutes ago, too, about how adding video to your to your bag of tricks essentially also does change your eye and how you look at things as a still photographer again i completely agree with that 100 percent. and and if you mix the footage is is where i'm finding it valuable like like i do a primarily still slideshow but then i drop in eight or ten seconds every few minutes of video yep that changes the dynamic i've got these new canon the xf 105 and 100 and I'm telling you what, those things, they're just, it's a crazy how good the video is out of them. And when you throw that up against, uh, you know, some nice still shots, it just kind of gives you a little more, like particularly with the eagle thing, I did an Animoto slideshow. And there's a few seconds where you get to actually see one of the eagles swooping down compared against all the stills of the moment the eagle captures the fish. I just think it gives a little better story. Yep, yeah, I agree. I, I've. 
uh, I've always enjoyed setting uh, stills to music and, and creating it, you know, pieces based on that. And I find that video is a wonderful, wonderful way to augment that, to bridge things uh, as you're telling that story. And it's a big part of the trip that I'm planning um, end of the month because uh, in that process, I'm planning to obviously shoot a lot of video on the 5D Mark II with my stills. But I'm also going to take uh, one and possibly two of the little GoPro Hero cameras with me that I'm going to have recording uh, on the car actually while i'm driving between all these different points just and it may just be hours of boring video there but it may be material i can i can pull from later it's got about 170 degree field of view it's almost bordering on a fisheye type of view and i'd love to tie that in i'll have one of those on my you know like mounted on my chest or something a lot of times when i'm hiking and and again i don't know that i'm setting out to record something specific but i'm gathering all that almost kind of b-roll footage so to speak throughout the trip that i can draw from to use it to bind together and add to whatever i set you know my stills to when i'm done yeah now, now what about what so here's layering in another piece of controversy onto this what about uh, stock photography with regard to video? Like Scott, are you are you planning or do you shoot any any video that's destined to go on like iStock and to make a couple pennies on every now and then? Absolutely not. I've always been into um, you know doing stuff. I do this for a living, so I don't have a client. I don't shoot. Um, so all the video I've shot has been commissioned and and or had someone speaking for it. Um, so I, I don't – for me, it's there's just not enough monetary return to sell uh, iStock kind of people. I mean I, I don't have anything against it for those that are able to work it well. Rich Leg does a great job. Nicole Z. Yep. There are a lot of people that are doing well with it and appreciate it. And I'm like if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But I equate that to some as to somebody who wants to make a living in the Sears Portrait Studio. Mm-hmm. I mean if you want to do 200 sessions a week and have your brains turned to mush, go for it. I mean, it's you're going to get paid very little money for a lot of work. I I think that uh, if you want to tell your own stories and use video as part of your own projects, it makes sense. I also think it might make sense just from the standpoint of documentariness. That's probably not a word in Scrabble. <laughs> you just uh, made it. You just made it. <laughs> uh, you know, like what's going to harm? For instance, Aaron's going to be at at first beach and second beach on the coast there uh, in the park in Washington. Those are pretty fantastic places. Even if he doesn't really have a need for it, if he shoots five or ten minutes of video and just buttons it up. Precisely my plan, yep. He's, he's got the material later on in life when he's old and crippled up like me and he can't move around so well, he may sit down and do something with it. At least if you've got it, you've always got it to work with later, and the tools are just getting better. I mean, for instance, you used to have to transcode everything to get it into Final Cut. Mm-hmm. With yeah, Premiere Pro 5.5, I just took this footage, which comes in a very unique wrapper from Canon, and dropped it on the timeline in Premiere Pro, and I went, oh, that's from the new Canon, XF105, uh, oh, no problem. Okay. <laughs> and I could then take footage from a 5D Mark II and drop it, and it goes, oh, and that footage is from a 5D Mark II. We'll put that in there, too. No problem. Wow. It, okay. it, it's, it, you don't have to transcode. And if you look at After Effects, the new After Effects, for instance, if you've got problems with shaky footage, it's got a stabilization engine in there. You used to have to sit there, and Ron Brinkman will know about this, keyframe everything. Yeah. Uh, now it just drop it in. They go, how stable would you like it? Would you like it completely stable, a little stable, half stable? And boom, <laughs> it's done. Yeah, they should have like a meter on there. How many cups of coffee did the shooter have? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Aaron, Aaron I, I just, I mean, I, just to jump in a little bit, I think that, that's actually the, the point you made about sort of documenting stuff that's going on, even if you're not going to do anything with it. That is very much the mode that I, I'd say I am into. Mm-hmm. 
Same where way. I don't want to scale that mountain of post-production on the video, but I do want to have uh, some sense of what was going on there, not just in terms of stills. You know, there's this whole life logging uh, mindset, which which I, I can certainly get into, this idea that, I mean, cameras are getting so so good and so cheap and so available and, you know, really ubiqui- ubiquitous in a lot of places where, you know, why not just go ahead and capture all of this data and the tools are going to get a lot better as time goes by for kind of wading through it all. So I kind of feel like, yeah, just get get some stuff. And even if it does sit in a drawer or on a hard drive for years and years, the fact that you have it from that moment in time, which isn't recreatable, is has some value. Yeah. What about you, Aaron? I mean, what do you think about this? That, that It fits exactly what I've been doing in the past. I mean, short of some specific video projects I've done, all of which are very small scale, um, I, I have that same feeling. I mean, I'm, par- I'm carrying one piece of equipment with me that does incredible stills and incredible video. I mean, why not take the opportunity to gather both types of media while I'm in the process for whatever I may do with it? I, I don't have a preconceived notion of what I'm planning to do on this trip, for instance, with it. I just know I want to gather a lot of material, and then I'll see what I can do with it you know, later on when I get back. The other thing, let me throw in one more thing, too, and I think this may kind of come into play, too, with, with uh, what Scott was saying. For me, video... Adding video is very easy, particularly if I'm, I'm setting something to music. But with a video comes good audio, and good audio is a skill set all its own. I mean, and it, it's, yep. it's equipment and so on that, that go beyond my skills at this point. I dabble with it. I have some additional equipment I've bought to kind of get into that area. But I make no claims that I have the audio skills at this point to do a proper video production as well. Yeah. Now, Scott, where, so audio, that's a, that's a good point. You know, with, because you can see beautiful, beautiful saturated HD video online with a crappy soundtrack and it just ruins the whole thing. So. Absolutely. You, in, you have investment to, you have to, in audio gear has to be has to match at least your your investment in the the visual stuff, right? Well, yeah. Except there's a couple things. It depends on what you're doing. If you're going to do stuff that's going to have music dropped in anyway, then you don't have to worry about audio at all. On the other hand, um, if you like these this XF series Canon camera I have has two XLR inputs with all kinds of pro audio control. You can put a pad in. You can. I mean, you can attenuate the the gain. You can do anything you want to those two mics, and you don't have to spend a ton of money. You're looking at, you know, drop in $250 shotgun mics on, on, on either of those channels, and away you go. You can buy a $250 field recorder that you can sync up with a $149 plug-in. And, yeah. and, you know, you're going to have as good an audio as they do pretty much anywhere else. Now, you can step up and really go crazy on the audio and, and all that kind of stuff. And if you if you have the budget and the need, that makes sense. But I, I've done I, – I just took a Sony PCM-D1 field recorder uh, to Alaska and just set it up on a rock out on one of these islands on the Indian uh, nation that I visited to go shoot the eagles. And I just recorded an hour of ambient eagle talk mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i'll drop that in fine i don't have to worry about syncing up a particular piece of audio in my case but um i think that the tools again they just continue to get better and better and better to make this a lot easier uh, if you do need to do dialogue and that needs to match your video then yeah we're talking about a different thing the thing i just want to throw in if you're serious about video the real big dynamic change that that I figured out three years ago down in Florida doing my first serious video is this. This is not a solo pursuit, guys. Mm-hmm. 
video is a team sport. You got to have a gaffer. You got to have a sound person. I mean, this is not something you do in a vacuum. You work with a team of people. No one guy or gal makes a video in, in most cases. There's, I mean, if you see Vince LaFerre work on location, there's a team there. And uh, it's more about the filmmaker's vision that gets translated to the rest of the team. And, and so it is a little bit more cumbersome, but it can also be more creative and more fun if you like working in a group. Now, let's just look at Leonard Nimoy as an example. He's gone the other way. He's, he came to you know do a lot of films we all know him as a director and an actor he's also one of the world's most serious photographers he's just photographs nudes exclusively he's done it for decades and um, i actually had the privilege of throwing his first online gallery up at f64.com in the mid-90s for him and i asked him why he did photography he said because it's the only thing i get to do by myself yeah, nice. cool. Now, no, Scott. Collaborate. Scott, the the one thing that you were just talking about it popped into my head was the the concept of soundscapes. You guys remember that when it was the idea of taking a photo and then recording a bunch of ambient mm-hmm. sounds to go with yeah. that photo. Where yeah. whatever happened to that? No one. They never got legs, right? Done a lot with panoramic photography too, particularly mm-hmm. with three sixties to give you something to listen to that was ambient while you were exploring a still scene in three hundred and sixty degrees. And and I'm planning. You know, I'm using a Zoom H4n1 or H4n, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, to record ambient audio, much like Scott was was saying, and just to kind of reiterate how complex the audio side of it is, with my eye as a photographer and some background in video, these little short films I was telling you that I did a couple months ago, they went very very well from visual standpoint. But the big killer for me was the audio. I mean, I just mm-hmm. I, I I got the job done and it worked for for this thing that it was doing. But it just I could tell right there where my skills were lacking and where I really did need someone dedicated to that task if we really were to have done it properly yeah so rewind this back a little bit to consumers you know so all the stuff that we're talking about the average consumer or the average twip listener is not not going to need a zoom h4n and you know all this gear to just record like you know a basketball game or something like that so so what like Ron, from your from your experience, what should the average sort of photographer that wants to capture some multimedia like video and audio and that kind of thing, what, what do they need? What do they need to take with them? Yeah, you know, it's you can you can just really go down that rat hole of spending so much on audio gear, and I think it's you know I, I would say start small, use use what's on your camera, and just get a feel for whether you like working with audio, you know, to start off with, because really a lot of times. You know, if you're focusing on the imagery, it's perfectly fine to put certain ambient music behind it, or or even you know, be yeah, house sounds or something, um, because it's just it's, it's a whole other deal. And especially when you start thinking about and you're editing it, and you really don't want to just cut the audio at the same place you're cutting the video. You want to either pre pre lap it or post lap it kind of thing, and have you know, it's just there's so much of an art form to it that I think you just kind of need to get into it slowly. That's yeah. the part I find so much fun, though, too, you know, is, is creatively, you know, pre and post lapping the audio and coming up with all those ways to assemble, you know, the, the production stills, audio, video, putting it all together. I mean, I think it's something every photographer ought to explore to some extent. And I think you have the tools even with the, with the minimally priced consumer cameras now. I think that's right. I think that, you know, the, the, the bigger issue is not the hardware tools. The, the issue is going to be the software tools. Get, get comfortable with those first before you, Start diving into getting getting hardware. You know what? One of the easiest ways to get wet in that stuff is I uh, went on a trip with my girlfriend uh, last week. Uh, we were in Virginia, 
and we were just you know, I didn't bring a camera with me because this, this was a work trip so I didn't bring a camera all I had was my iPhone and I documented you know some of the things that we're doing some basketball games that we went to and things like that and I was able to put together a video in the iPhone using iMovie for the iPhone with stills with Ken Burn interspersed with video clips you know I could have narrated and did a voiceover on the whole thing and then at the it, literally this took me about 30 minutes to put together I don't think it was like a two or three minute clip. Um, and then I pumped it all up to Vimeo and shared it out to everybody, you know, all from the iPhone, you know. So it, that kind of sharing, I think, is is within reach or that kind of video editing and capturing and post-production is, is within reach for the average consumer. And the things like the iPhone make it really easy to get that stuff done and edited while you're still in the moment you know i think that's the important piece rather than shooting all this footage on a traditional video camera and then have it just stay there you know until you figure out what you're going to do with it later yeah that, yep. that the sharing part is the important part but that's always been a problem in a lot of different venues i mean people take still pictures by the thousands and don't do anything with them either i mean you know you got it there are tools iMovie is very easy to learn to use to just knock something out that looks pretty professional um if you do want to invest in something like premiere pro uh that's cool now the new final cut pro is going to be 299 bucks that's not a lot of money, and that's going to yeah. do a lot of stuff. So, I mean, I think the tools are getting better and better and better. And if you look at what goes up on YouTube, stuff doesn't have to be perfect. If it's a compelling story, it's really good. But I, I do think that um, the visuals still are very much the key for me. Uh, I get the audio, but I, I'm able to do that in a way that it doesn't intrude on me getting the visuals I want. But it is I can tell you it is a little bit harder, um, and that's okay because every once in a while I like a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Challenge is good. This is this is an interesting conversation. You know who would be good to weigh in on this conversation? Alex Lindsay. And he has appeared online. Alex Lindsay. <laughs> so I am gonna try to bring him hey, everybody. in. I'm gonna try to bring him in. Here he is. Let's see. We're live bringing Alex Lindsay into the fold. We'll see if this connects. Alex Lindsay, are you there? I am. Look at that. And just wow. like that, so we were saying aliens abducted you, and we're probing you. But uh... you know, it's, it's it's nothing, nothing nearly as exciting. Uh, we uh, we're moving today into our uh, new studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. Uh, well, we're we're moving. Here's the problem: is is that we're moving up uh, to the new studio, and it's not quite ready yet, and so it's a little bit chaotic today. And I just lost track of time. All right, no now, worries. Sit, well, I you're down my, my my phone. I feel like a fool. You were online with Ron, Scott, and Aaron, and myself, of course. Hey so. guys. Hey, hey go say hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. <laughs> there you go. Right. Now I feel good. better. A blast yeah. in the past. 200 so, twips ago, he said those immortal <laughs> words. <laughs> All right, Alex. So we were we were talking about uh, one topic that's right up your alley, uh, video. We were talking about sort of high-end video and what needs to what people need to be cognizant of when they're trying to get into that space. And then we just left off and talking about low-end video, with, like editing on iPhones and that sort of thing. So you know, I'll throw it to you on the if if a, the average this week of photo listener is interested, you know, they maybe they have a D seven thousand or a five D or something, and they want to go out and shoot video on that, and that's all they have. Maybe they have three lenses, they have that, they have a strobe, and now they say, okay, I want to shoot some video because, you know, Scott Bourne and Alex Lindsay are telling me that I need to shoot video. What do they need to do? What's their next step? Well, I think that the first thing is, you know, make sure that you have a good fluid head tripod. So still, still photographer may not think about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
but you got to have a, a fluid head is basically one that's got the little handle that you can move back and forth. And, and there's going to be little things that you can, that you'll want to start paying attention to. Um, you know, having one with a ball head, uh, not a ball head, but a, but a base, a 75 millimeter or hundred millimeter base. It's got a little, it, it sits inside of a cup and Miller, I think makes one for about $250, but it's, it's, uh, but they have different ones that you can get. What's nice about that is it's easy to level. Um, leveling so head. Yeah. Yeah, and so so you want to. I mean, that's a that's a great tripod to add to what you what you have. Of course, you can use a lot of cheaper tripods. Um, you know, the thing is, is when you get started, you're probably you're not going to move the fluid head that much, uh, other than repositioning. So even a cheaper one will be fine, um, uh, because you, what you're going to probably start off doing is you know is uh, actually just locking it off. So putting it on some kind of tripod. You do need support for your SLR. SLRs are very sensitive to shake so uh so you're going to see it pretty quickly if you try to do a lot of handheld work with your slr um and so having a um a, a monopod uh or a tripod uh is is pretty important uh especially if you're going to throw a longer lens on because uh, one of the things that as you know when you're shooting you have to pay attention to vibration when you have a, a zoom lens uh this becomes much more important when you're shooting video because it means that any little hiccup that you have when you zoom out to 200 millimeters or 300 millimeters, it just looks like everything's rattling around. Um, it doesn't take very much for that not to work at all. So those are, those are two of the, the basic things about, about that. I mean, when you're shooting video, the thing to remember is that most of the rules that you have as a still photographer are the same. You know, the rule of thirds and framing and a lot of those things um, really remain the same. And then what you do is you simply have to learn to allow your camera to stay still and allow things to happen in front of it. Yeah. So your camera's lagging behind everything around it uh, because a lot of still photographers, you're used to reframing and framing up and reframing and keeping things exactly where you want. And if you do that uh, with your camera, it'll make people nauseous. So, uh, so what you want to do is be able to, uh, you know, kind of allow things to occur, you know, in front of your um, camera. A great way if you're just getting started, you've never done it before, is turn off the audio. Watch just, just watch a good, you know, 24 or Law and Order or Game of Thrones or whatever you like and just turn off the audio so you're not distracted by the actual story and just watch what they're doing with the camera. It's, it's like that's interesting. Yeah, that's one of the best thing. classes that you'll get is some, a, a, you know, multi-million dollar production and just see how the choices that they make in their shooting um, is a great way to do it. The second thing is sound, of course. Yeah, so you, yeah. you know, you're going to deal with that. The sound on your camera is not going to be particularly useful. Yep. It's okay. Um, but sound is more important than audio, especially when you get started. You can get away with a lot of bad, uh, I'm sorry, sound is more important than video. Uh, you get, you can get away with a lot of video problems if the audio is good. You can't get away with bad audio, um, for very long, uh, before people will just turn it off. And so, you know, we typically shoot everything dual. We do dual recording. Mm. And what that means is we have another recorder. It can be like an H4N, um, you know, or an H, even an, you know, like a little zoom. We use... These things, the, the, the sound devices, uh, is the company that we use most of our stuff. It's a little bit more pricey, so it's not something that you probably want to get immediately. Um, but we just we really prize our our audio. Um, but you can uh, sound devices are the best thing you can get. Uh, the zoom, zoom might be more of an entry level for some folks, but you've so, got to get. So, so Alex, so flipping Scott, you're you're doing this for well, both of you guys are doing this for commercial product for uh, customers, and mm-hmm. so the the things that you shoot. As as opposed to things that I shoot on video, I can throw it on my hard drive and delete it later if I want to. But you, your stuff has to live on in forever, right? Because you can't. It, right. It's for a client. So Scott, I'm gonna throw it to you first. What are you doing? What's your what's your archival sort of process flow? Um, well, um, 
I'm, I'm shooting with those new Canon cameras primarily, and we take the footage and drop it on to a RAID system. I'm using a very fast RAID system by Weeby Tech, mm-hmm. and it has a special, you know, it's like a 100 megabit transfer rate. Um, so we drop it in and, and to that, and then I'm now working with Premiere Pro, bring it into the Premiere Pro and play with it, and then we send it back out to uh, drives, and then I ship the drives to the client. So uh, it's, you know, it's it's not as sophisticated as Alex's workflow, I'm sure, but I'm just shooting B-roll for people mostly, so I don't have to do too much sweetening. We do a little bit of what's called grading in the video world. We do a little bit of that, but it's, you know, what you call color correction and still photography. And um, we do a little audio sweetening when we do audio, but um, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I'm taking pictures of birds, you know, they, yeah. they, uh, they never ask for extra money. Yeah. Now, Ron, what about you? I mean, you're, I know you're not shooting a lot of video um, out there, but just in general for the bits that you do capture, what are you, how are you keeping up with those? Oh, it's, I mean, you know, the only, the only thing I'm shooting is my, uh, my little point and shoot, my S95, uh, is really all I'm doing for my video. So I, you know, it's not, it's not that much stuff. So it's the same workflow as, as I have for. So your stuff just goes up on Mosey, then you're happy, right? Uh, not Mosey, Backblaze. Backblaze. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. The other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's exactly the same workflow as my photos, which is uh, everything's on the local hard drive. Everything's mirrored to the Drobo, which has its own redundancy, and everything is backed up to the cloud to Backblaze eventually. Gotcha, gotcha. And Aaron, what about you? I mean, what's your uh, what's your flow? I know yours is probably more robust, right? Uh, very similar to uh, to what Ron just said. Um, most of my stuff comes in. Um, is on the Drobo, is from Drobo out to Backblaze, and then as a sysadmin, I've got gobs of servers and stuff here in our environment, so I move things to other servers that I have available to me here on campus as well. So, And again, none of my media uh, you know, coming off the cards ever gets removed until I know it's in two more places, you know, here in the cloud or here in another server or whatever before I reuse media and that type of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Similar. And then, Alex, you of, of all of us, you probably shoot the most footage, I would assume, so Yours has got to be the bulletproof workflow because you can't afford to lose anything. So what do you do? Yeah, so I mean the the, uh, the first thing that we do is we make one of the big things we try to train everyone to do is not again that's already been mentioned. Don't delete anything until you have it. You 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 can you verify that you have it copied. So it's not just that you moved it. You open the file, make sure that it didn't corrupt on the way over, so on and so forth. Um, and so we you know we try not to you know go through the cards. We try to make sure that we have those those things. Sometimes you know my brother is leaving today for Ecuador <laughs> to do interviews, which he'll be shooting on an, on an EX and a five D. And um, and uh, and so you know that becomes much more of an issue. Um, uh, he's he's down there with uh, three with two drives, you know, to back everything up against uh, all the time. Um, he will split those up on the way back. So he and um, the person he's shooting with, uh, Marty Rosenberg, who's a visual effects DP that we work with a lot. Um, is uh, going to be, you know, th- those two will come back separately. You know, well, they'll, well, they'll come back and they'll both have the drives um, with them. The uh, When we get back, you know, most stuff goes onto the Drobo while it's being worked on. Everything's edited in Final Cut uh, currently. Um, we then, uh, you know, things get finished. Uh, the client, you know, oftentimes we're sending, we have a very, uh, uh, we do a lot of work um, for, uh, Salesforce.com and a couple other companies, and you know they pretty technical clients, and so we're we're actually able to send them, you know, rough edits that they kind of play with and cut um, and uh, and and work on and send back, um, you know, and so the uh, so 
then we once we finish it all, the projects uh, are organized very carefully into uh, folders. Uh, generally, they are backed up. Uh, we have a Drobo that has all everything we've ever done. You know, the end, the un, the less compressed version. Nothing's uncompressed, but less compressed version, least compressed version of everything that we've ever done. Uh, is is in a couple places, um, but then we also, you know, we deliver one to the client on a drive. Uh, we also then back those up to two raw drives, and then keep those in separate places so that you have, um, you know, have that kind of spread out. And so those I, are the. I just want to forget. I forgot to mention one thing that the XF one hundred one hundred five that I'm using have two CF card slots, and you can program to write to, you know, one as a backup. Yeah. So so that's one of the things we're doing is we're awesome. using. We're using the 64 gig cards, which is enough to shoot video all day for me, yeah. and and so I have two of them. And then one of them is automatically a backup, and we never ever do anything with those. Yeah, and when we're when we're shooting video, typically uh, when we can, um, a lot of times what we're doing is we're taking when we're not really you know in in South America or in Africa or whatever. A lot of times we have the uh, luxury of. Uh, taking the HDSDI or HDMI directly out of the camera. You, you can't do this with the SLR because it puts stuff on top of it and it's compressed and so on and so forth. But it's a much higher quality video coming out of that HDSDI or, uh, or uh, SDI. And uh, we typically record do, into two key pros. So we have a, a backup um, and a, uh, you know, two versions, two of the same thing that we're ca- capturing all the time. We, we just loop between the two of them or split to each one of them. Yeah. Um, this makes sure that we again we have two copies. When you're capturing digitally, even a tape or digital, it's just that you you know uh, there's all kinds of little blips and problems that you can you can run into. People may and, and then there's just little things like people hit the wrong buttons. You know we've lost files that way. Uh, we're we're really glad we have the backup. <laughs> so, yeah. And and um, and so the uh, uh, you know there have been you know there there you know I, I try to explain the guy you know we are crazy about redundancy uh, i just got finished uh, the last 4 days we were shooting down in uh, half moon bay for salesforce and we just have we have like three backups of everything all the time and someone asks you know why do you you know people think i'm a little crazy i'm like there's a scar on my back for every extra piece of equipment that we have here <laughs> but that that's alex that's like production level stuff though we're talking like you're shooting for salesforce and these companies where they're they're handing over a check, so you you cannot afford to lose stuff. Right. But what about the average guy? You yeah, know, when I'm just... out there shooting, the the thing is, is that when I'm out when I'm out shooting, the way I typically bring stuff back is that I have I'm managing everything in Aperture, and so you know for my own home stuff, what I'm doing is I'm going out and shooting stills and videos of my kids. I bring it back, I put it on Aperture. I have a backup vault that I send it out to on the Drobo. I take the most important stuff and put it up on the on the cloud. Mm-hmm. And so, so those are the you know those are the three copies that I have. The the my aperture library sits on a three hundred mega megabyte per second RAID. Uh, that's just internal to my my. I have a tower, mm-hmm. and all you have to do is take three stock seventy two hundred RPM drives and fill the extra bays that you have in a, in a tower, stripe them zero just with the software RAID you know that that comes with the Mac, and you get three hundred megs a second <laughs> internally. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and so you put three you know. Um, you know, three reasonably fast, you know, two, two terabyte drives, and you've got over five terabytes of really, really fast footage. I mean, really, really it's fast. It's all self-contained in one box, right? Yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all in your Mac, in your, in your uh, MacBook Pro. And, and then you, then you, obvi- the Drobo obviously isn't as fast, but, you know, that's just backup. That's just to make sure everything's going well and you can do that automatically. And so, so the, um, uh, you know, that's how we kind of, uh, you know, when you're talking about, when you're working for a client, you do want to, there's nothing worse than, 
telling a client that you lost their footage. Yeah. Uh, and I've done that, and it's really, you know, it's a real bummer. So, so, um, <laughs> so before, we, before we move on to the, the next segment, there's an interview I want to throw in here, but I want to uh, – we had – Scott Bourne, we had uh, Sigma reps on the show – a while back, uh, and, and that the impetus of that show was a previous show where we we were talking about third party lenses, yes, and if it made sense to buy a third party lens like a Sigma or Tamron or whatever, or wait to get the manufacturer Nikon, Canon, Sony, whatever lens. Uh, before we move on to the next segment, I want your thoughts on it because you've used all this stuff, and and I want your thoughts. Should should photographers purchase a, a, a less expensive? Or even similarly priced Sigma, for example, lens over the the competing Nikon version, or would just buy the Nikon? Well, I I'd say it's always a good choice to buy the Sigma lens if Nikon or Canon doesn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a three hundred to eight hundred Sigma. A lot of people know I have that lens. I've been using it for years. We call it the Sig Monster. It's the longest zoom lens in the world, three hundred to eight hundred f five six. It's a great lens. It's like fourteen grand. And neither Canon nor Nikon makes one. So that's yeah. easy. Um, they also make a really good... You need uh, like a car for that lens, don't you? Like for, like, for its own... No, just, you know. just, just a donkey. <laughs> 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 they also make a great uh, 50 to 500. They make some really interesting lenses. Where's my experience with the Sigma? The high-end stuff in particular is very good. Um, I do think that the one place they fall down is they probably don't have the quality control that Nikon or Canon does. So while the lenses are all really good, and I think if you're buying their top-of-the-line stuff, you're going to get just as good as you get with Canon or Nikon, what you're more likely to run into is the quote-unquote bad copy of a lens Mm. because the quality is less. Now, when it comes to some of the other brands, I don't have as much experience, but I can tell you this, 99% of all lenses are better than 98% of all photographers. Nice. I like that quote. Say that again. 99% 99% of all lenses are better than 98% of all photographers, meaning the lens is capable of more than the photographer is most of the time. So don't worry about it. That's, awesome. you know. that's like It's like people buying a Lamborghini and only driving yeah. it on city streets, right? Listen, you can find YouTube videos of people crashing a Bugatti Veyron right out of the dealer showroom. I mean, you know. And I got a video of another guy throwing a rod on a, a Ferrari 430 GT. Um, you know, right in the showroom parking lot. I mean, it's there are some times when you don't need the fastest, bestest glass in the world because A, your job doesn't require it. B, your skill level can't really take advantage of it. And C, the money's crazy. Uh, I, I think these third-party lenses get a bad rap and that sometimes people – you know, feel like, well, I can't, I shouldn't have only the very best. There are times when only the very best matters, but I'm going to guess for the big majority of this audience, that's not true. And then certainly there are times when I can speak to Sigma's quality because I've tested theirs the most. Uh, I've tested both Tamron and Sigma, and at the high end, both do a good job. Yeah, well, our other resident curmudgeon, Ron Brinkman, I think you were one of the arbiters of that that whole conversation about Sigma and all that. So where do you fall, Ron, on what what Scott just said? No, I totally agree. I mean, I I think, you know, we kind of came to the conclusion that it was uh, definitely there are lenses that they only make. You know, I I really like the uh, the 8mm fisheye. That uh, that Sigma makes, for instance. Although I guess there is a Canon version now, but um, but yeah, you know, I, I I think it's ultimately boy, you know, if you're spending that much time worrying about your equipment, you really got to be careful. You're not doing that to the exclusion of worrying about your craft. And you're, I think that's, you're missing you know, shots, right? 
Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's there's so many other things you can do to improve your photography beyond just what what lens and even camera body you're shooting. Well, yeah. if you're one of those people saying, "If I only had this lens," exactly. That's yeah. like yeah. saying, you know, if I only had this much money or this girlfriend or this car or this, you know, you're not going to ever be happy if that's where you're at. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a it's an excuse, right? It's a crutch. Yeah, yeah I love it. All right, guys, uh, we got something special for this episode. Many of you probably know the, this guy. His name is David Zeiser, and he's an internationally renowned wedding and portrait photographer. In addition to being a world-class instructor for the NAPP, or National Association of Photoshop Professionals, uh, Scott Kelby's joint, and he's one of only 98 people worldwide to hold the title of fellow as bestowed by the American Society of Photographers. So he's a real deal and twip staffer bruce clark sat down with him and spoke with him um at the canadian imaging conference in banff in canada a couple of weeks ago so let's give that interview a listen well welcome to uh, this week in photo and i'm uh, pleased to be joined by uh, mr david zeiser uh, today uh, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to sit down with me and chat with the this week in photo audience bruce happy to be here today thank you very well, much for the invitation well, you're more than welcome so we're here at the uh, Canadian Imaging uh, Conference here in Banff. And beautiful Banff in this historic hotel. What could be more beautiful here today, oh, you know? It's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, and I see you've got your camera with you. So you All the time. You know, as Jay Mizell once, once said, he said, you can never capture the moment unless you got the camera with you. You know, you, 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 you'll miss the moment if it's not with, not with you. And I think it's good advice. The camera's always on my shoulder. Excellent. Excellent. Have you had a chance to get some, some good photos so oh, far? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I yeah. mean, just driving in, I was doing what we call our drive-by shootings out the window. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we even have, a, this has nothing to do with the program you want to talk about, but we even have our technique with how we do that. High shutter speeds, high ISOs, because, you know, those trees closest to the windows really are going to blur quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds stupid, but my wife and I do a lot of traveling, and, and the drive-by shooting photography technique is kind of fun and funny, and, and we get some pretty neat shots, you know, at, at the resolution of the window, yeah. <laughs> not the lens, but the <laughs> the window but yeah. you know they're still kind of fun to look at oh that's great excellent so maybe for those who aren't uh, aren't familiar with 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 david zeiser uh, maybe give us kind of the elevator speech tell us a little bit okay. about who is david zeiser and uh, you know i'm a photographer that's been uh, working out of the metro cincinnati area right in this right in the midwest for a long number of years i'm not going to tell you how long i've been doing this but it's been a long long time i will tell you that i photographed brides uh whose mothers and fathers i had photographed before but i'm not going to tell you how many times that has happened either but it's it's quite the honor when that does happen so we operate and we were, we photograph i think some of the, the you know the nicer events in the cincinnati area and so forth so in addition to doing that i also do a lot of lecturing and training around the country and around the world too uh i've done six kelby training videos i wrote a best-selling book last year Went into a second printing after only four weeks on Amazon. It was, I think, the hottest selling wedding book on Amazon last year, too. Uh, there's another one in the process. Uh, you know, actually, that's my project this year is to, to get, a, get the second book started, too. Oh, great. So, and we do a lot of lectures and teaching. Last year, we had a very, very popular uh, lecture tour. It was captured by the light based on the book. And we visited 20 cities around the country. The year before that, we visited 60 cities around the country. It was a digital wake-up call? Digital wake-up call, visiting yep. about uh, 10,000 photographers on that tour. So, wow. so I enjoy the training. I, I mean, I get a kick out of it. I think the audience enjoys it, too. So, so it, it's, a, it's another part of what I've been doing over these number of years, too. Oh, but yeah, not to take away, I mean, we, we run a very, very busy studio back in uh, Cincinnati, the Kentucky side of Cincinnati as well. Okay, great. How would you get your start in photography? 
you know what? Some people, many people don't know this, but my background isn't actually in photography. My background is actually in physics and engineering. Oh. I've got a degree in physics. I got a degree in engineering. I was actually doing a triple major. I was actually trying to pull a, a degree in uh, in computer science as well. Now, the only reason I joined a computer science uh, class was so I could get. Uh, back in the day, what was way before laptops, way before desktops, we had to turn in the the punch cards. There, I'm dating myself. We had to turn in the punch cards. You got one run a day off the computer. And I, so I was doing a triple major because I wanted access to that computer more often. So I've been a geek most of my life. And now that we're in the digital realm of things, I love, you know, geekdom rules these days. Yeah, that's probably paying, uh, paying off in space. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Sure. So, so that's a little bit of my background. And then, you know, all through college, though, I, I basically paid the, paid the tuition and the books and the rent by, by shooting photographs. I was a custom black and white printer for a lab one time. I was a custom color printer. I was a darkroom manager. And, and really, that was a, a lot of great, great uh, you know, background for even what we're doing now and how, you know, how to understand how the print and how the necessities need to be. But then my friends, uh, start, and I was also shooting high school sports for the, for the studios I was working for during my college days. Well, then graduating from college, I started out as an engineer. Then my friends start getting married. One thing I did the other. Before long, I was, doing, I was getting way busy. As many people who segue from, you know, from, uh, from, from their job into photography, that was kind of happening for me, too. So I had some consulting business that was kind of, kind of fading out. But the, the consulting was fading out, but the photography was coming back in. And it was uh, October one year, many years ago, that I actually jumped on the full-time photography fence, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So, so that's how I got involved in. And, and I, even since those early '80s, been growing my business regularly over all these years. Always trying to offer the clients something different. It's always the difference makes the difference. And number two, trying to offer them the finest photography they could get in my market area too. That's great. So you've been at it for, for quite a few years. We won't say how many. Quite years. a few years, right? <laughs> but um, how do you how do you find yourself staying fresh and inspired, uh, shooting for all that time? Huh? You know what? That's something that I think more and more people kind of you gotta you gotta wake up. You have to have a passion in your life about what you do. And I think of a fellow that was at my class. Oh my gosh, it must have been fifteen or sixteen years ago. And his name was Chaim Meisdorf. He came all the way over from Israel to be in my class. I was teaching for the professional photographers of America at their school, which they was called uh, Winona at the time. And we had a group of about 35 people in a class. And, you know, I'm teaching photography and lighting and posing and composition and everything. And then, you know, how schools go, you've been to them. You know, the, uh, you know from the first day, second day, everybody's getting to know each other. Third day, everybody's getting more familiar. We're all buds. And anyway, somebody in the class knew Chaim was from Israel, made the trip over to be in a class. And I said, Chaim, how come the big Jew, how come the Jewish party is always these big, lavish events? Well, it's like all inquiring Gentile minds wanted to know. <laughs> so we're all leaning forward, and, and Chaim tells us. And then he, you know, he gave us some great history and some, you know, what's different about uh, weddings here in the States versus over in Israel. But the final answer to the question was, why are weddings so important to the, his Jewish people? Was He said, you look at my history over 5,000 plus years. He says, we've wandered in the desert. We've been enslaved by our neighbors. He said, there's always turmoil going on on our borders. Even today, 15 years, he, he said that. He, that's true. And even today, it's true. So, you know, that part of the, that part of the world uh, is, is what it is. But he said, you know what has kept my people going for these 5,600 years? He says, it's living from one joyous occasion to the next. Hmm. And that made sense to me as a wedding photographer, that if I can look through my camera, and instead of just seeing another darn wedding on that weekend, if I can see what's taking place before it is a joyous event, that gives me a completely different attitude about how I'm going to photograph that event. I'm not doing it for beer money. I'm not doing it for this or that. I'm, not, I'm just not, you know, I'm going out there because I'm doing something important for those people that hired me. 
to photograph that wedding. And when somebody hires you, they don't just hire you to photograph their event. They honor you by asking you to be part of it, too. And that's, that's just as important a reason to bring everything that you can, your body, soul, heart, creativity, everything in your mind, everything you can to photographing that event. So I think of Hyam's words 18 years ago, 17 years ago, and I, I continue to think about them every time we go out and photograph a wedding. And I think it keeps me going. The other thing, too, is what makes people bored? What makes people bored is doing the same old thing over and over and over again. Well, my gosh, if I was doing the same old thing every time I thought, shot a wedding, I'd want to shoot myself in the head, too. You know, none of us like do, doing the same old boring thing. Sure. Yeah. So the thing you have to do is each time you go out is find some way to spice it up, maybe with lighting, maybe with composition, maybe you got a new lens, whatever it happens to be. But try something different every single day. I like what Jerry Jehuna said. I heard him speak at his tour that's touring the country right now. and Bambi, uh, With Bambi? With uh, Sam Putch. Sam, yeah, Sam Putch, the Power Pudge. of Passion yeah. tour. Right. Yeah. And it's probably one of the best pieces of advice. It's not about us wanting to be the best we can be. As he said, it's about us being better than we were the day before or better than we were the week before on that last wedding. And if we can know that going into that the upcoming wedding this weekend, I want to be better than I was that week before, what's going to happen? You're going to bring more of your heart and your soul and your energy into photographing that job. So joyous occasion, honored by being at that event, and just doing a better job than you, than you did the week before, puts you in a position of, of proactiveness of staying excited about what you're about, what you're doing. So... That's how it is. Every week I go shoot a wedding, and I think that's a good place to be. Yeah, that's great. I met actually, funny you mentioned that story about Hayam. I met a fellow here who's come all the way from Pakistan. You may have met, I've met uh, AJ, him. and I think he's coming down to, to join you next week in Texas, I think, yes. for your yeah. show down there. And uh, he was telling me we were talking about differences between weddings in, in, you know, here in Canada, for example, versus over in Pakistan. And he was saying that uh, one of the, the longest weddings he photographed was 16 days. Oh, my God. 16-day <laughs> wedding, but it's such a huge celebration over there. Mm -hmm. It's the same same sort of idea. So that was really interesting to kind of, I don't know. I'd I don't know how many of those you book in a year. <laughs> oh, I would be exhausted if I had to, to shoot a 16-day wedding. But uh, I've done one Pakistani wedding a couple of years ago. Beautiful, beautiful bride. But it was a three-day event. And yeah. I hear the Indian we weddings are like that, Very too. Similar, but yes. But, yeah. man, oh, man, you're worn out. Come the last event, you're worn out. It's a lot of work, <laughs> yeah, for sure. They're not easy. But uh, they're very colorful and so oh, much ceremony yeah. to them. And, yeah. and, and I love that. I love just seeing how the different face and different cultures celebrate a wedding. It's kind of a hobby of mine, just kind of research that whole thing. Yeah. So I, I, I still I still enjoy that aspect of it too. That's great. I think you're you you sort of developed kind of a distinct style with your with your photography. I, I know that I can look and see an image right away, and um, you know I, I can look and I say, oh, that's a, a David Zeiser image um, with a lot of your off-camera lighting techniques and these things. Mm -hmm. How did you develop that style? How did that come? Is, have you always shot that way? Is it sort of been an, an you know evolution? I, I don't know because I remember my very, very first program I gave, probably 1980, to the Louisville Professional Photographers, and I was petrified of public speaking, and that was kind of what I do, actually. Uh, but I was asked to give a program, and and I, and I don't know even what made me experiment. Well, actually, I do know. I, I started experimenting around with double lighting, you know, off-camera flash. And uh, to tell you, the, the name of that, the title of that program was Double Lighting for Double Profits. I still remember it. I was making these pencil drawings and taking photographs of it. Those were my, my examples I was giving. Even when I was a hobbyist back in my college days, I can remember photographing. You know, the, 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 everybody was sitting around the, the bonfire, and they were celebrating something. 
And this is, I mean, this is low ISO days. This is 160 ISO days. This is way before 125 ISO days, way before uh, Kodak Verica or 400 or even 800. So, I mean, we're talking early days. We're talking late 60s. But I, I remember looking through the camera, I said, how am I going to do this? Time exposure isn't going to work because our film speeds were so slow and our apertures were so small. I mean, 2.8 was maybe the widest I could get at the time. Uh, what we were shooting, I, was, I guess I was shooting... I don't even remember what camera, Rolly or whatever the school had given me. So that was a 3.5 aperture with 120 film speed film. How am I going to capture the beautiful lighting? Imagine, imagine me looking at you across from you, people to my right, bonfire here. I wanted to light up all these faces of everybody celebrating and singing and everything else. So how could I do that? And I'm thinking, available light is going to work. Everybody's going to be blurry. I don't have any high-speed film, uh, high-speed processing. I still couldn't get it fast enough to get those faces registered. And I had a buddy of mine, and I had a, a, an extra flash, and I thought, you know what? I want you to stand opposite the faces to my left, let's say camera left, the people I wanted to light up a camera right, bonfire in the middle. And I said, I put the camera on the tripod. I said, on the, when you see me drop my hand, because I couldn't count one, two, three, when you see me drop my hand, you hit the open flash button. And as I dropped my hand, I hit bulb on my camera, he had open flash button, and I turned it back off, and I had my first off-camera flash exposure. Wow. And that was when I was a teenager. So... <laughs> Anyway, so as a hobbyist, you know, I'm an engineer. A buddy of mine is an electrical engineer. Now we're trying to create these our own off cam our own remote controlled triggers, and we're thinking of radio shacks, uh, you know, car garage doors openers, which were new at the time, by the way. Maybe we'd make that work. Anyway, long story short, we never invented anything. But about that same time, Dynalite, about 1978, came out with this big, huge, bulky radio control sender unit and receiver unit. I was about the first one that bought one, and I was still early 20s when I bought it. So I was shooting off-camera flash. I like to joke, before David Hobby, the strobus was, was say, even born. You the strobus before <laughs> yeah. the strobus motion. Before it was even born, I was born, doing yeah. that. Wow. But that, that's, a, that's a true story. So then when we start shooting weddings, I knew what I wanted with the off-camera flash. And I thought, okay, what can we do? Well, I bought that, uh, who made that unit? Dynalite made the unit, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And then in those early 80s, they become more and more popular. He had Lindahl come out with one, and then eventually Quantum came out with one, and then I ended up switching over to the Quantum because I think it's so reliable. And I had, my gosh, it's all I've been using for probably 25, 30 years. Yeah, and you shoot mainly Quantum. Yeah, yeah. But that was the start of it because now when, instead of me just taking a photograph of the bride of the cake with my Hasselblad cam or my, whatever the cameras were at the time and just blasting away at the cake detail, no detail at all, I'd have my assistant come in from another direction. Now we got like crossing the cake, crossing the gown, and I had detailed depth, dimension, and color saturation. I had highlights next to shadows that made my photographs look different than anybody else. So that's it's a long story, but how that? But I've been doing off-camera flash for a long, long time. Yeah, and so you think that's really helped you kind of separate yourself from oh, all sure. the other photographers you know, out there. You know, I, I think it's interesting. Probably in the by the mid '90s, I would say probably 85, 90 percent of the photographers were still not using a secondary light. I think now it's probably 95% are not using a secondary light. Everybody's in, and I hate to say it this way, but kind of running and gunning and all this other stuff. You know, and I think, and I hope I don't get any nasty comments on the post, but I think a lot of wedding photography is looking pretty much the same these days. So even when I ask my audiences, they all agree. Go online, and it's looking the same. Well, why is it looking the same? Because they're either not using any flash at all, or they're just using a flash on camera, which means that the light is coming in from the same direction as the lens is pointing. So 
there's nothing but highlight only that the subject that the viewer sees, and you really have to get the flash off camera to put a highlight next to a shadow to create that detailed depth dimension and color saturation I just mentioned. And you spend a lot of t time in your workshops, and a lot of your training is on exactly. sort of around that. It's right? exactly that. You know, it's it's interesting since I've been primarily a wedding event photographer just about my whole life. You know, I, I don't do many high school seniors. I don't do many family portraits. A half a dozen each a year, kind of a thing, because I still enjoy my weddings. So even though my seminars and workshops and books always have brides and grooms all about all throughout them, they're really about lighting and composition. I mean, I, I was talking to my wife, LaDonna, about, you know, I should go out and actually shoot some models that aren't dressed up like brides, and I bet I'd probably take a decent photograph, <laughs> even if I weren't in a bridal dress. So, so who knows? Down the road, that's probably on our agenda to do. But, but the off-camera flash just makes such a big difference in, in what people can see in the photography these days, I think. I think one of the other the things about your style and, and that I really like is that you really love to use the environment and, and include the environment in a lot of your images. Mm -hmm. A lot of wedding photography tends to be the focus is really on you know tight on the couple. Yeah. And I look at a lot of your images and it's you, you like to use make a wider small. lens yeah. and, and really incorporate. It could be I make my science, my subjects really small because maybe they're not as good looking as the other photographers <laughs> shooting. Just joking, just joking. But you know, it was funny. I taught my master class, which we do twice a year, you know, in the Cincinnati area. And we're in this beautiful location with all these sweeping curves and lines and a angles and everything. And, and I'm saying, look at all this. You know, let's see if we can capture that. So I had my group. So I have a smaller group I'm working with. And what do they got? They got like 70 to 200 millimeters on their lenses, uh, on their cameras. Or they got 85 one twos, and they're shooting in close. I said, what about all the lines? What about all the curves here? You're missing it. And I said, take those lenses off of your cameras and put the widest angle optic on your camera that you can possibly have. So they all went back to their camera bags and, okay, now now go to 14 or go to 16. Now look through your camera. Oh, wow, I see it now. It's cool. Of course it's cool. <laughs> That's why you want to do it. So I am a, I am, I am a wide-angle freak and I'm a high ISO freak because I think it really, really makes the photographs, like you say, look different than all the close-up stuff that we see a lot. And it's just kind of how I see, you know, not, not for good or for bad or anything like that, but, but I, think, I think I have a way of seeing that I can quickly compose an image and, and hopefully make that image exciting with how the, how the client's position, how the line, the eyes, viewer's eyes being led into that subject and everything, and then how I light it on top of that, too. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a chance to, the first time we met was about three years ago at Photoshop World in Boston, mm -hmm. and I actually attended one of your pre-conference, uh, mm -hmm. we did a, a, a wedding shoot there, that there was a church. Oh, that's right. In yeah. Boston. And that then, beautiful uh, we, church, a historic church. It was beautiful, yeah. yeah, and that's where I saw you working the whole room and using the whole environment. Uh, and then remember, we went outside, too, and we were using the building outside mm -hmm. of the groom, and I loved how that shot came out, too. Yeah. But it's, you notice the lenses I'm using a lot are wide-angle lenses. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite wide-angle lenses now, you know, I, I'm a Canon shooter, and I have, you know, I've got the 10 to 22 on my 7D, and I've got the, uh, my gosh, 18 to 200, you know, these are kind of my regular lenses I'm shooting. It's interesting, I'm not, I'm not, I shouldn't say I'm not a fan, but I don't own the 24, I think, the 75 or whatever, that's a popular lens, 2.8 lens. I'm not into fast glass. I'm into image stabilization, and I'm into wide-angle lenses. So my current favorite lens on my Canon 7D happens to be a Sigma lens. It's an 8 to 16-millimeter Sigma. Super wide. Super duper wide. Yeah. 122 degrees of wide-angle wonderfulness. And, you know, and rectilinearly corrected wide-angle wonderfulness. But, you know, Canon doesn't make it. Sigma's the only, one, only place I can get it, but I just love the effect. So... I'm, I'm like I said, I love the wide angle lenses. Now you have to be if you're shooting wide angles, man, you got to be careful that you're not going to pull Mr. Gumby on some of the subjects. And sure, so yeah. you have to be careful of that. But yeah. but I think that's I think the lighting and I think the composition that's what what I try to bring to the to the table to make my images exciting for how I see anyway. Yeah. 
That's great. Um, what's in your typical wedding day kit? What would you take with you on to a my camera shoot? bag, my gear bag? Yeah. What would you typically have in there? Uh, you know, I, I got the five D Mark II. I like that for low light shooting at the wedding reception. That means no flash going off at all. That means fifty millimeter one four wide open sixty four hundred ISO. And sometimes even up to 12,800 or 12,400, whatever that ISO is, a high-end one. You know, and I, I like the fact that we have this stuff that we're, that we, you know, having these high ISO cameras, having these wide aperture lenses gives us more shooting opportunities than photographers have ever had in the past, particularly us film guys. Uh, so 5D for low light. Typically, I'll have a 7D there. It's kind of my main shooting camera. 5D also for my, my groups and things like that. But 7D is probably my, my, uh, the one I use most often. Uh, Lens-wise, I've got, I've got the 18 to, six, 18, the 8 to 16 millimeter in the gear bag. I've got an 18 to 200. People say, that's not even a, one of those uh, L lenses. Said, You're right, but you know what? I'm not blowing up the wall portrait size. I'm blowing up the 8x10s on the wedding album, and I'm shooting at 5.6 all the time anyway, or 6.3. My images look great. I mean, I got 24, 36 images off that 18, 8 to, 18 to 200 millimeter uh, uh, Canon lens. I like it particularly for my wedding reception candidates because I can really, if I see grandma rocking and rolling out there across the room with, you know, with a grandson or nephew or whatever, I can zoom in close. There she is rocking and rolling. Snap, I got that great photograph of her. Now, am I using uh, uh, high ISO for this? No. Typically, I'm shooting at 800 ISO. Typically, I'm shooting at 5.6 or 6.3. And here's how again again I differentiate myself is I've got my on camera flash firing, my assistant at another position in the room, and I get a room light set up too firing. So I have I call it a three point lighting system. The easiest way to think about it in your mind's eye is think of a triangle, an upside-down triangle where I'm at the bottom part considered at the 6 o'clock position. The other point is at, uh, let's say, 10 o'clock, and the other point is at 2 o'clock. So in your mind's eye, you've got an upside-down triangle. The action takes place inside the triangle. Okay, so if the room light is at 10 o'clock, my assistant's at 2 o'clock, and we just keep the action in there. If, I'm, if I move, let's say I jump to the 2 o'clock position, if, you, if you're following me along here, now rotate the whole thing around. My assistant's at 10, the room light's at 2, and I'm at 6, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. So if you can draw that out real quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as we're dancing around the clock face, the room light doesn't change. So if I go one way, the assistant basically goes the other way. But we keep, keep the action in the center. And having said that, my gosh, that's why I like these long throw lenses from the wide angle to the telephoto, because I like that long throw at a wedding reception during the heat of the action. So... So uh, what other lenses do I take? Outdoor bridal portraits. If I'm out there just kind of shooting, and anytime I'm taking a portrait of anything, my lens of choice is going to be the 70 to 200 f2.8 lens on my camera. And I'll shoot it on the 5D, or I'll shoot it on the 7D, uh, and, and I'll shoot it typically if I'm shooting outdoors, it's going to be at like f4, f3.5, because I want that background to go very, very soft. Not the subject, but I want the depth of focus to be shallow so that the background goes very soft in the scene. And that, in turn, makes the subject really, really pop out of the scene. So, Canon 5D Mark II, 7D, 8 to 16 millimeter wide angle. Another one of my favorite lenses is a 24 to 105 f4 lens, image stabilized L series. One of the sharpest tacks in Canon's box. Uh, I got that one in there too. 70 to 200. Uh, what was the other? Eight uh, and the 18 to 200 are probably the lenses I'm using most often. For available light, I do have a 50 millimeter 14 that kind of sits in the bag for some of these available light candid things. Maybe when the bride's getting ready, or even at the wedding reception, we're shooting high ISO stuff. And then I have a Sigma fisheye in there too, just because it's kind of fun. And you think about a fisheye lens. What do you need a fisheye for? Well, you know what? Fisheyes look cool if you're working a venue. Even here at the Banff Springs Hotel, there's a couple rooms here that kind of got all these neat curves, arches. Mm -hmm. That could look kind of cool with a fisheye lens. But more importantly, what I love a fisheye for is 
Now imagine this. I'm going to put the 7D on my camera so the fisheye doesn't cover the full frame. It's giving me part of it, but I like the cutoff part of it. I don't care that I, I get the circle on the 5D Mark II. 7D, though, I got a truncated uh, field of view, which is fine. I'll put that on the monopod, put my flash on top. I got my room lights firing. I put it on, so I'll, I'll focus on, let's say, all the groups. Let's say uh, the bride and all her girlfriends are dancing, you know, in front of me by about 10 feet. I'll press the button, I'll, I'll focus on them 10 feet, put it on manual, press the button, and now it's starting to back tick, you know, nine, eight, seven, six. So I know it's going to fire at about seven, it's going to fire at about 10 seconds. So about, at, I'm counting this off silently to myself at about 1,006, 1,007. I lift the camera over the group of all the girls, and I say, hey, girls, look up at the sky, look at the camera, look at the camera, say hi. And, oh, and, you know, in those last three seconds, I see it, see it, see it, flash, and I got this great photograph from a point of view that nobody ever even considers shooting at sure, a wedding. Sure, have a bird's eye view. Exactly, the bird's eye yeah. view, and don't think bird's eye view, but how about putting it on the ground if it's in the dance circle and do the same thing? Yeah. You just slide it in there, hey, everybody, look at the camera, smile at the camera, oh, yeah, and they'll do all kinds of goofy things, hammering it up. And you just have a completely different field of view that nobody else does. So that's what I love the fisheye for, in yeah. addition to some neat wide-angle things, but kind of like it for that, too. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, so that's, that's pretty much the lens gear. Then I'm also, and then I carry with me a Canon. For flash gear, I got uh, 580 EX2 sitting on the camera. Another one is a spare in the bag. I got the, the Quantum uh, T5D uh, flash with the turbo. Now I'm using a Turbo 3 battery, their newest battery. And I use free wire radios to kind of keep everything firing, which includes room lights and my assistance lights. So that's pretty much the whole thing. I mean, I'm in my low pro bag wheeling into the job. And, you know, for the room light, we got some light stands and some other things, but you know that's that's pretty much what we take not a, not not a ton yeah not a ton. yeah well, that's great um you also share you know you have a, a great website I, I follow it every day did the digital pro talk um site and you share also a lot of business yeah. tips and 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 for, uh, with photographers how's the wedding industry changed in in your area <laughs> boy isn't that isn't that the big question yeah. anymore how's the wedding interesting change i did a blog post i don't know if you saw it over at scott kelby's blog i was a guest blogger Oh, I'm trying to think. Maybe five or six weeks ago. If you just Google Kelby and Zeiser, the post pops up. It got 100 comments on it. And it was the title of the article was Wedding Photography Today, the State of the Union. And I, and I have been analyzing and thinking about this in depth for, for over a year. Like, why has it changed the way it has? Why have the wedding averages dropped down? Why are people happy with, you know, it, why are they happy with it's good enough for me kind of a thing? And I think a large part of that has really turned our wedding business, uh, I think it's really made it a lot more challenging for the photographers out there shooting, particularly the people that aren't changing with the times. Uh, you know, all this has happened, by the way, when you start thinking about it, all this has happened only over the last 24 to 36, not even 36, 24 to 30 months is, is when all this stuff really started happening, or when it's, since it's transitioned, all this stuff. So what's taking place in that amount of time? Number one, two, or two, two and a half years ago, we didn't have the, fa the presence of Facebook like we do today. I mean, it was, I don't know, three million, whatever it was two years ago. Now we're 550, 600 million Facebook users. You got that going on. You got Twitter. You got blogs, which were kind of popular, but now they're becoming more and more popular. So you've got all the, all the social media stuff happening. I think that has been, let's say, the big, the big equalizer of photographers out there. Now, anybody with a camera and a website and a Facebook page is on the same competition field, if you will, with a, you know, the Main Street Studio 
because just go up, look, make your decision or whatever. So I think that's one thing. I think, too, I think society is willing to settle or, you know, is maybe wants to bargain a little bit more looking for lower prices. And take this for what it's worth, but part of the article I talked about, I think we're kind of a Walmart generation. I shouldn't say we, but I think a lot of the people out there are Walmart generation, particularly the buying public right now. Now, who is that buying public? Well, if you start looking back to, and I researched this, when when was Walmart, when did they start advertising? It was about 25 years ago when they started their advertising. So now people that are 25 years old now have been hearing what for the last 25 years? We're lowering prices again. we got the best prices in town. Hey, come to us for the best prices. So they've been kind of programmed to look for the best price, look for the lowest price. I might be way off base with that, but I think there's a little bit of substance in that, that conclusion I drew. Uh, I think another thing, too, is that I think people are willing. There are so many photographers out there. I mean, look at the proliferation of photographers. I bet it's ten times more than it was, again, two or three or four years ago because cameras are so easy to come by. A lot of photographers think that, oh, my gosh, I own a, a Canon Rebel. I think I'm a professional photographer. Well, I think I could probably take a decent camera with a, a, a decent photograph with a Canon Rebel, but that does not make me a professional photographer. What makes me a professional photographer is hopefully having a, an eye that can compose a cool image, uh, having a, uh, a personality that loves, lets me relate to the, to the client, uh, lets me run a, a good business so I can pay my bills, keep my clients happy, and still make a satisfying profit for the whole thing. I think that's all what a, a pro really, really is. But I think there's so many shooters out there, I think it now becomes a point when the bride and groom are looking for something, I say, oh my gosh, we've looked like four photographers. Let's just take this guy or this girl kind of a thing. So I think that's kind of a, a kind of what's happened as well. I think too, I think the person making the buying decision has changed over the last two or three or four years. You know, it's interesting. You look at the the, the term the new millennials, which are the new brides and grooms. You know, they are and, and and my kids are new millennial kids. You know, they got their own mind. They're going to make their own decision. They're going to have it their own way. Meet my daughter. My gosh, she's going to be. She has an assertive personality. Not that all the kids this age, you know, in the mid twenties have, but but I think that's part of it where they want it their way. So, you know, three or four or five years ago, moms and dads were making the buying decision. I think now the kids are making a lot more of that a bigger percentage of the buying decision. So that being the case, you know, they're saying, I'm not going to spend $3,000 or $4,000 on wedding pictures. And why is that? They don't have a reference for that at all. Moms and dads do. They bought cars and houses and everything, but now our buying public has no has no uh, reference to what a bigger number is and, and, and what, what you get for that bigger number, quality and service and all that other stuff, too. So I think that's part of what it is, too. So here, I'm going on and on and on here, but I think I think it's changing, and I think that's why we have to be connected to that buying public if we're going to make a difference and have our, our businesses continue to thrive. Uh, my newest conclusion is the most connected photographer will be the most successful photographer. Connected with vendors within his community where he's working, keeping those relationships strong, authentic, uh, present all the time, and also connected via Facebook, Twitter, and blogs uh, with with how they're communicating communicating with their buying public, and I think that has to continue to go round robin with vendors and with potential customers and current customers and and everything. So, connected both in a physical sense of vendor association and building those relationships, and connected even more importantly in blogging and tweeting and facebooking. That's great. Sort of taking a, a bit of a side sidetrack, um, we had uh, Moose Peterson uh, on a recent episode, and mm-hmm. so a little a little Moosey told me that you've been shooting into an iPad and have kind of a, <laughs> a unique way of uh, shooting into an iPad. Would you care to share the uh, the secrets? Yeah. It was pretty funny. Uh, at Photoshop World a couple weeks ago, 
Damien Tepe is kind of my, he, he's my like IT consultant. He's also an assistant for me. And if I need, if I need any geek stuff done, I give Damien a phone call because he helps me get it all. I mean, he, he will get, he'll, he'll figure it out and we'll get it going and everything. So anyway, I said, I said, we got to get this worked out. We have a program called Shutter Snitch where you can download for $15, put it on the iPad. And I've got the, the Canon wireless transmitter fits on the bottom of the camera, which, uh, which I've used to shoot live into laptops and things like that. But, but having a $15 Shutter Snitch software to shoot live into the iPad was very cool. So that's just the regular standard Canon uh, wireless transmitter. Yeah, it's the six or seven hundred dollars. Yeah. It screws on the bottom of the okay. camera, or whatever. And uh, and we had it worked out. We got it worked out the day of my pre-conference, my wedding shootout. And we're walking through the hallways, and we're just shooting around and showing all the other instructors. That, wow, that's cool. That's cool. So we were kind of a, a little bit of the buzz at Photoshop World. And uh, I bumped into Rick Sam. I was doing a podcast with him. And he said, I'm kind of shooting. Doesn't that count as being cool? I said, nah, that's so, that's so Fred Flintstone. You know? <laughs> so anyway, so we were having fun with it. But you know, even Scott Kelby hit on his blog. Like Terry White, he was shooting with an iFi card. Mm-hmm. Uh, which didn't have the range. We could go up to 100 feet away. We were getting two and a half second transfer rate. It was trans. We were. We had the camera set up to shoot in smallest JPEG, 800k JPEG, and in a RAW file. So the RAW file stayed on the camera. The JPEG headed over to the iPad, and it was so quick. And the Shutter Snitch app, it wasn't like just smacking up on the screen. It would just come up nicely on the screen. It would just appear nicely, like with a half a second dissolve. So it was very, very cool. Oh, excellent. So you could set, actually, that the raw file stays in the camera and mm-hmm. only the JPEG will go to the... Yeah, the, since the it's smallest, it really transfers quite quickly oh, and, and that, even up to a pretty good range. Is that so. a setting in the shutter snitch software then or is that in the... In the, in the you, can set the you can set how the camera transfers to, just yep. say, transfer small JPEG, keep the raw here. Okay. And then the, the shutter snitch just kind of looks for it, you know, whatever's coming its way and that just lights up on the screen. Oh, great. And then the cool thing is we just took, whether you're using iPad 1 or 2, both of them work with the software. Yep. And I have a VGA adapter out of my iPad 1 I was using. Uh, Damien has, uh, he had the HDMI because he's got the new iPad 2. But however you do it, as long as you've got a projector, that'll, that will that will plug into. We were shooting into the iPad, and then we had a projector in the church. We had just a projector. We ju- just project into the wall. So the whole class could literally see you know, exactly what we were doing as I was setting up shooting, talking about it. And it was kind of a neat, it really ramps up the learning experiences for workshops. You know, here Wednesday at my uh, my early bird, we're going to do the same thing, shooting into the iPad, and we'll have and we'll be anywhere we want, completely wireless, uh, and let the audience see the really big screen as opposed to the back of the camera. Oh, that's great! Does it go over Wi-Fi or over the Bluetooth, or how does it do? Yeah, you know, it, it's set up. That's an ad hoc connection, ad hoc connection via Wi-Fi from the camera to the iPad. It doesn't have to go through any other networks. In fact, if you have got too many other networks, it kind of gets confused. We were at the when we were at uh, uh, Orlando at their huge convention center. <laughs> You know, you turn on your iPad or computer, say, other Wi-Fi networks, you got two or three pop up, whatever. There must have been 30 of them popping up on the <laughs> trade show floor with all the other vendors and the convention and everything. So, But it, worked, it still worked pretty darn good. That's great. So that uh, Shutter Snitch software, is, it's available now? People can yeah, go you can download that. it. They just came out with a new upgrade just like three days ago. It's oh, got great. even more features in it. Awesome. What I want to do as a trainer, because I enjoy the training, yeah. I don't want to shoot to just one iPad. I want it to go to one. I want it to go to five iPads. So now let's say I'm teaching a small group of 25, like we're at these sure. pre-conference or whatever. Let's have five iPads in the audience, and when I shoot it, Everybody can break into smaller groups and look and everything. Spread them around and exactly. That's great. So I think well, that's that I think that's great. And then you know what? And then take it the next. It's not just about training; it's about sizzling the client experience. I mean, imagine you're shooting a high school senior and mom came along too, 
So you start shooting away, but you let mom look at those images right on the iPad. Sure, or commercial shoot. If the, if the art director was there exactly. or the client was there, they can see the images right away. Or, or how about a wedding? Yeah. And you've you got a cap, you got everybody right in the wedding reception. You've got your iPad there shooting from anywhere in the room because it works very good distances. And you've got your data projector plugged in, you're, and you're projecting onto a screen all the dance photographs and the cutting the cake photographs. What a great, great way to to enhance and sizzle the experience for the client. So I love the technology in, we're in. I think I said this, I said it in my class, I said, we are sitting We are sitting in the lap of technological luxury these days yes. for those geeks of us that enjoy that kind of stuff. Our, I, I think there's geeky girls, but my wife is not a geeky person and she lets me get away with it, but there's geeky girls out there too, I'm sure, listening that, oh, yes. yep. that do it too. So That's fantastic. Yeah, I started, we started using an iPad in our um, business last year when they first came out. And our experience with it was, you know, we'd, we'd do a quick edit at dinner and, and get a few photos onto mm-hmm. the iPad and then hand it to the bride. Exactly. And she was thrilled. And she'd run around the whole room and, and, and show them to all their friends. And they were just, you know, excited. So this has taken it to that, well, and, that and, next level. And think of it, too. I think the iPad is probably the most important accessory a photographer can have, regardless, whether it be showing portfolios or shooting into it for clients or whatever. But now think at a wedding. I mean, what do many photographers do when they're, they're at a wedding shooting? They say, oh, my gosh, that's so beautiful. You have a card on you? The biggest mistake a photographer can make, and I cover this, by the way, you mentioned my blog post, Digital Pro Talk. Thursday is always Business Day Thursday, and I covered this a couple of months ago, as a matter of fact. The biggest mistake a photographer can make is to produce a business card and give it to a potential client. And you're scratching your head, and you say, well, why would that be? Well, because what happens to that suit coat or that person, whatever, when they get back home? It's off to the cleaners. That thing is history. It's a little, it's whatever. It's gone. You know, it gets misplaced. It gets lost. It goes out to the dry cleaners or whatever. So if you think about it, what are the chances of that, of that, of a reconnect between potential client and photographer happening if you give them a business card? What's the potential of that reconnect happening? I think it's in the realm of 20, 25% where the client will actually set the card aside and then eventually call you back. Okay, reverse it. You got your iPad. Somebody says, oh, my gosh, can I get your card? I say, you know what? Let me show you my portfolio. Got a favorite image? Oh, my gosh, I love that one. Let me send it to you. And then you, from the iPad, just said send, get their email information, get their first last name. Dear Mary, it was so nice to meet you at Mary and John's wedding. Hey, here's your favorite image. Uh, let's plan on getting together in another week or so. Now, what are the chances of you being able to reconnect with that client a week or two later? 100%. It's 100% because you've got the contact information. Oh, that's a fantastic tip. That's and even back in the day, before all this digital technology, I never, ever had a business card on me. I've never owned business cards uh, for my studio because I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have a card on me. Do you have one of your cards? I would collect them because I had 100% reconnect. They don't have a card. I'm going to write it down on a napkin and put it in my pocket. I always wanted that 100% connect. Puts so. the control back in your hands. And exactly. Instead of theirs. That's exactly. Great. That's a great tip. Excellent. So that's Thursdays as you do the business tips. Business day Thursday, yeah, right. That's right. great. That's great. Well, definitely we'll be linking to all of this in the show notes for this post as well. Okay, so, great. Yeah, that's great. So um, just before we wrap up here, I know you need to, to get back in and pack up after the trade show and get ready for your presentations coming up. Um, what are Do you have anything uh, coming up on the horizon that uh, people can check out? Some conferences? I know you've got a, a workshop coming up in Sedona. Sedona. This is something brand new. You know, I do my I do my uh, my digital master classes. We keep it to a, a group of about 20, 21 people. But then I get emails. In fact, we just finished one up right before we flew up here to Banff. And they said, oh, my gosh, why don't you have just a much smaller group, charge a few dollars more for it or whatever, and just make it be more one-on-one. So we are trying a grand experiment right now. We have the Sedona Experience scheduled for July or June 5th, 6th, and 7th, I think, are the dates. You go to digitalprotalk.com. It's listed up there. 
but it's going to be exactly that. We're limiting it to six people only, only six people. The price is not bad. It's more than my five-day master class, but we're going to wake up in the morning and eat breakfast together and have lunch together and have dinner together, and after dinner, we're going to spend till 9 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night reviewing images, mine and theirs and everything. We figure we're cramming 30 hours of instruction, training, learning time into that two-and-a-half-day process. So. I think that's a pretty good deal. Good it's, value for the money. Yeah, and huge one-on-one -on -one experience with everybody there. So we got that coming up. Uh, our other master class, uh, it is coming up in October. I don't recall the dates exactly, but it's online. And we already have hit about half full already, so if anybody's interested, they can check that out. Uh, I'm heading down to Kelby Training in probably about, uh, my gosh, in about three or four weeks. We're scheduled to do a couple more Kelby Training videos, which have always been very, very popular with you know with our people uh, signed up for that. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, that's pretty much going on for right now. So. You mentioned another book. You've got so oh. your one book that's out right now, of course, is Captured. Captured by the Light, Light. hugely popular book. Uh, and now uh, I, I'm planning to write the second book. And Scott and Dave Mosier, the folks at Kelby Training, Kelby Media, have already said, so when are, when are you getting started on this book? So they, are, they want me to get started on this book, too. So we're uh, planning to... Give that a go here pretty soon. Any uh, any hints on what it might might be about? Yeah, it's going to be strictly on lighting. So a whole book on lighting. So I have a couple small chapters or a couple chapters in the Captured by the Light book. You know, and we're talking about oh, put the light here, put the light there. But I want to really, really expand on the whole process. I want it to, to be, you know, lighting. Like what lighting do you use for the wide angle lenses? Is it different than when you shoot telephoto lenses? What lights looks best when even in lenses? What about different locations? How about some, you know beautiful, grandiose locations as our lighting looks better there. How do you problem solve light? Let's say you've got the flash, but you're lighting up different parts of the scene you don't want to light up. How can you problem solve and fix that? So it's going to be lighting with you know, lenses, lighting on locations, lighting outdoors, just really, really every single lighting situation that you come up with and how to light it. Also talking about different kinds of lighting techniques, whether it be you know, flashlights, LEDs, bouncing off of the wall, natural light, whatever. We're just really going to expand on it. And really, it's, it's going to be the lighting book is what it's going to be. Great. It's going to be the lighting book. Well, look forward to it. That, so it should be exciting. exciting. Excellent, excellent. Well, David, I really want to thank you for taking the time to sit down and uh, talk with the This Week in Photo audience. And I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you online? I'm very easy to find, digitalprotalk.com. Great. And, and that'll tell you where I am, what day, whatever day of the week. I usually start the first paragraph, says, hey, I'm in Banff, Cal or Banff Alberta right now. You know, come up and say hi, whatever. So, And then uh, there's, as I said, you mentioned Digital Pro Talk. Monday is always Quick Hit Monday, the most interesting web links I found usually over the, you know, the last week. Tuesday is always Technique Tuesday. It's a video tutorial, uh, usually 10 to 15, sometimes 20 minutes long. Depends on how long-winded I am. It's on lighting, photography, Lightroom, or Photoshop. Uh, Wednesday, I'm going to start another series that was very popular a couple, about six months ago after class. It was entitled The One That Got Away. You know, if somebody takes a photograph and it's so close, why didn't they just move the camera an inch to the left kind of a thing? And it really is a great way to help the, the readers look at an image, see if they see what I'm seeing. And if they do, they say, oh my gosh, yeah, I'll know, I'll know to do that for the next time too. So, so we'll be moving on with that. Thursday is always my favorite blog post. It's Business Day Thursday because... I am first and foremost. I like I like to run a tight business, and I, I like to show people how to make money and how to sell their photography more effectively. So that's great. And then Friday's whatever's on my mind. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely send people that uh, that way, and definitely head online. Are you also on Twitter? 
Yeah, I am. Now, I, and I'll be honest with that. I, see, I'm talking about a lot of social media stuff. I, I follow several people on Twitter, and I'll, and you know what? I shouldn't, I'm more than that on Twitter. And I'm, I'm using uh, a couple of uh, different resources where I'm reading whatever it was. I, I read Flipboard a lot. Uh, uh, Zeit is one of the greatest pieces of software for the iPad right now. So I am consuming a lot of content online. If there's something I think is helpful for my readers, I will put it in a Twitter feed right there in Digital Pro mm-hmm. Talk. So if they click on that, they can go back and see all of them. And I try to actually get about... Uh, Probably about ten tweets or so a week, maybe twenty tweets a week. You know, if I'm just, oh, that looks good. Send it to the blog; they can read it over there. So yeah, I am. I'm much more active uh, Twitterer than yeah. I used to be. Great, excellent, so, well, very good. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and sitting down and talking with me today. Oh, enjoy Bruce, the no rest problem. Of the Thank time you very much. Banff. <laughs> I, we are planning to. We're taking a few days off and enjoy your countryside here. Excellent. You can even come back for the second book. This would make a great venue. Maybe for there the, you go. The maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great. Appreciate your time. Thanks, okay. Dave. Thanks appreciate again, it. Bruce. All right, that was Bruce Clark interviewing Mr. David Zeiser. For more about Mr. Zeiser, be sure to head over to uh, the show notes for this episode and click on one of those links. All right, right now, uh, let's give a quick nod to our one of our sponsors. Alex, who is the other sponsor? Who is week? the other sponsor? <laughs> you, uh, you have no idea. I put you on the spot on purpose. Ah. <laughs> the yeah, other sponsor in the middle. I don't know. It's audible.com. This podcast Audible. is brought to you by audible.com. I don't know anything about who is. So what is this audible.com? They are the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. Featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. You don't know that by now, Alex. <laughs> you know, so it's one of those commercials. So what is it? And then, and then I get you to explain it for me. No, it, so the, um, the, uh, the audible.com, of course, is one of my favorite services. I, uh, I have all my books, you know, that I pretty much read. I mean, I, pretty much if it's not available, uh, on audiobook, I'm not gonna, you know, probably not gonna read it. Because that's the way I read now. I mean, it's so so the audible.com, of course, you've got over 75,000 titles. You've got, you're able to, um, you know, uh, just about everything that's coming out now, especially now that Amazon and Audible are together. Um, you know, just about everything you see. What's great is you're on Amazon, you see the book. Oh, this is a really cool book. I was looking at getting one on, you know, of course, because of the news last week, I was looking at getting uh, a book on, Steel, on SEAL Team 6. And there's a great book, and it just came out, and I, uh, on it and i was like oh it's a book and i was like there's no way it just came out there's no way it's going to be available oh yes it's available on audible (laughs) download and uh and so the the uh uh, that to me that is it just becomes that's the way i listen to things if it's if it's i have reference books that i have in pdf um uh picture books sometimes i get in with in paper uh but if it's got a lot of text i look at it and like this has got to be something that you're going to put in on that i'm going to listen to and you know it's great for when you're cleaning the house and when you're driving and you know and uh anyway so uh, I have a great. Um, I think we, we've talked. Have we talked about the? Um, uh, did I recommend on this show the How the West Was Lost? Mm, I don't recall if you did. So. Or not. so that's the one I'm listening to right now. I'm kind of in the middle of, which is by uh, Dambisa Moyo, and she's from Zambia, and she's an economist, uh, and um, she, you know, it's it's like a little mini masters in macroeconomics <laughs> about, you know, and it's not not particularly. Uh, uh, a happy happy story about the uh, the West uh, economy, but uh, it's it's a lot of fun. So it's not related to books. I mean, necess- I mean photography, so to speak. Uh, but it's but it's a good example. Now there's there, you know it's there's not a lot of picture books you know in audible.com, so it's hard to recommend photography books. But but the uh, but but that's just a great example. If you're looking for something that's pretty dense, um, that's a that's a pretty good one. 
but really, there's everything that you can possibly imagine. There's spoken word. There's uh, there's uh, fiction. There's nonfiction. There's economics. There's all kinds of other fun stuff that you can listen to on Audible. Uh, it is just a great way to go. And if you want to check it out, you can go to audible.com slash twip. That's audible.com slash T-W-I-P uh, and uh, get your free book. Very cool. All right. Thanks, Alex. All right. It's time for some listener Q&A. And we're bringing back a, new, a segment to the show called Tip of the Week. So prepare your tips. So basically, this segment is every week our producers scour the TWIP forums at thisweekinphoto.com slash forum. And they find the best questions for us to answer on the show. However, comma... Our forums are currently down <laughs> because build up nice. for nothing. Because <laughs> yeah, I know yeah. much ado about nothing. You know, I'm not. I don't want to trash anyone's software, so I'm not going to mention any names. But our, the software that was driving our forums could not stand up to the this week in photo load. But I'm just saying. So uh, <laughs> we don't. No comments on that, please. So basically, we are. Uh, in search of some more robust forum software, I think we found it based on Alex's recommendation. So we are going to be putting that in place very shortly, and we will have a much more powerful, robust forum for the This Week in Photo audience. So, But until then, instead of doing listener Q&A, we are going to do tips of the week and then picks of the week. So, Alex, I'm going to let you go first since you were last on the show. What's a tip that you want to give the This Week in Photo audience? Uh... This is, you know, I'm putting you on the spot today on purpose. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that I, I, I just, so the, the tip that I would have, I mean, is, is just to, to keep your camera. I mean, I know, I know we've said this before, but I just, this is the thing that I've been thinking about lately is to not worry about whether you're getting, that every photo is going to turn out great. I mean, obviously you're shooting for that, but keep your camera around and shoot a lot. Um, you know, the, the thing is, is that I was taking pictures of my kids the other day and I, and I realized that, you know, every time I sit down and take my pictures with my kids, I end up with some classic photo that I'm really glad I have now. Um, and it's not usually convenient and the lighting's not the way I thought it should be. And, and, and the kids sometimes are all, you know, they got food all over them and, um, you know, or, or whatever it is. And, and I just, I'm just so glad that I pulled my camera out and started taking pictures anyway. Like I just brought it over and make it a, I guess I would say make shooting a you know it's it's a discipline you know it's like yeah. going to the gym it's like going out if you really want to become good and this doesn't mean you want to become a professional photographer if you just want to be a good photographer and have great family photos uh you know part of it is a discipline to just take the camera out and say i'm going to shoot x i'm going to shoot every week or i'm going to shoot every day uh and just take some photos and uh it is um, more than anything else you know it's that it's those ten thousand mistakes or ten thousand hours or whatever it is that you just keep on plowing through taking a look at it and it's going to make a difference and it's probably one of the most it's more important than what lens you get or what kind of camera you have is is just uh racking up you know taking lots of photos digital now back when we started all of us it was film and it was expensive and now you can just throw it away if it didn't turn out yeah and scott i'm gonna i'm gonna throw it to you for another pick or another tip which you want to you want a tip now i want a tip and then we're gonna have a pick all right my tip (laughs) is that if you are shooting a panoramic and you're stitching in something like Photoshop, do something crazy and turn the camera on its end. Shoot it, pan, shoot it vertical as opposed to horizontal. This will, give, this will mean you take more pictures. A, a three-image panorama that you'd shoot horizontally might be five or six if you shoot vertically. 
because you got to do your overlap. But this gives you so much more data to work with when you import into Photoshop that you avoid having all those weird, you know, when you when you bring it in and then all the edges kind of like curl up and go in all these different directions, you end up sometimes losing important parts of the picture. I found that when you shoot vertically and stitch, that doesn't happen. And when you need to crop in to get the actual part you want, you've got much more to work with and you've got more pixels in general so you have a higher quality image and it's counterintuitive but try shooting your next panoramic that you're going to stitch vertically perfect and i would piggyback on that uh don't be afraid of doing more than one row of absolutely absolutely yeah so you should do two rows of vertical shots and stitch them all together and have a gigantic gigapixel shot out of that all right, and my my quick tip is for folks to go, be sure to check out meetup.com for uh, different events in your local areas. In fact, in the Bay Area here, I run one, and uh, it's, it's uh, you know, if I do say so myself, it's pretty amazing. We get a lot of people, <laughs> get a lot of people there. Tell us more, Frederick. We get a lot of people there, and we will put a link. Alex and the Pixelcore crew came down to the last one and recorded it. And live streamed it to the internet, and the uh, the archive of that sh- that shoot is up on thisweekinphoto.com. So if you want to see what they look like, just head over there and watch the video. So thanks a lot for doing that, Alex. Yes, we're gonna be, and we're gonna try to make it a habit. Yeah, yeah, we'll try to do all of these. So it's gonna be a good thing. All right, let's let's blow through these picks of the week real quick. Uh, Aaron, what is your pick? I have I have two, uh, one a little more depth, and one very brief that I'll mention. Uh, the first one is. Um, it's a device that, again, ties in with this trip I've mentioned. I sound like a broken record on that at the moment, but and it, but it ties in very heavily with some other points that were made throughout the show here about uh, backing up your data and having multiple copies and so on. Um, on this trip, I'm going to be you know, pretty much out in the wilderness, and I'm not going to have a lot of resources with me to... Um, you know, to back things up very easily, um, like I would if I were near a laptop or something like that. So I'm actually taking a, a hyperdrive, what's called the Color Space UDMA. And I don't know where this has been discussed recently in another show uh, that I hadn't heard yet. But um, the hyperdrive, I worked with an older model hyperdrive a long time ago. It's a little pocket-sized device. It has, it reads bazillion different card formats. I'll be using CF cards. It has a hard drive inside. You pop your card in it. It pulls all the images off and backs them up. Um, this is an old concept. It's been around quite a few years, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. The thing I like about the hyperdrive color space uh, is that being UDMA, it's incredibly fast. So it'll dump about 8 gigs worth of data in about 2 minutes, which matters a lot when you're taking big cards and, and high-resolution images. But it also has a feature called OTG, or on-the-go, mm. and that's the ability to attach a, uh, a USB hard drive to it and mirror the data that's in that drive to the external drive as well without the need of laptop present to do it. So um, what I'm essentially taking is a 500-gig little color space unit with me and a 500-gig external drive together, and uh, I'll be able to mirror the data. So I will most likely keep the shot on the card, keep a copy on the color space, and then be able to mirror it to the drive back at the car or potentially even out in the field in some cases and and walk out of there with two or three copies of all the images. And that on-the-go feature has a lot of nice capabilities too. It does partial backups. It doesn't keep repeating the entire card backup. It looks at the card and says, oh, you've added 20 more pictures to it. Here's the difference between what's on the drive and the color space. It'll back up only those differences between them to speed up the process. So uh, really great looking device. Um, I'll be able to tell you more about the hands-on use of it here in a few weeks. Um, cool. But uh, they're $249 is the base price for an empty one. And when I say empty, meaning no hard drive in it, I find the most cost-effective thing is to go buy a 2.5-inch SATA drive 
you know, I got mine off of Amazon for 50 or 60 bucks at 500 gigs. So I just bought a couple of drives and I'll be using that. Um, and the last thing I'll mention real quickly, um, I'm a big fan of Zenfolio. It's where I do my online photo sales and actually where I've decided to go ahead and host all of my images for my gallery. It kind of joins my blog in that regard. And I started doing all the image hosting on Zenfolio rather than the blog itself. And uh, just uh, last week, they made a update to their Zenfolio iOS app, and they added the iPad to it, put a beautiful interface on it. It's essentially a wonderful iPad interface to your entire Zenfolio account. That includes managing it, moving photos around, adding photos, removing them. But one of the really nice features is the ability to to go to your galleries. You can pre-cache or download entire galleries to it so that if you take your iPad somewhere where you have no connectivity, you've pulled the images in ahead of time. Uh, but it keeps the same arrangements that you have in Zenfolio to mirror that structure. So if you're visiting a client and taking shots that you've selected from an event, you could pre-cache it all, take it with you, the client, and you can sit there with the iPad together and, and, and collaborate and go through the shots you know, in that beautiful format that you get with that device. And the client can on the fly begin to build a set of favorites, and those favorites are then mirrored back to Zenfolio. So when you're back at your desktop later, you can start to manage that whole process of breaking up the shots and doing the edits. Perfect. So it's a free app. You just need a Zenfolio account to tie it with, which right. I highly recommend. All right, cool. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Mm-hmm. And Scott Bourne, what is your pick? Uh, do I get two picks, too, or just one? Uh, you can have two quick picks. Okay. My first pick is a 2011 Jaguar XJL. It's, oh, wait a minute. I'm on the wrong show. Uh, <laughs> not, I, the Lab- I, not the new Lamborghini? Come on. No. The So here's the thing. I use a lot of these plugins for Photoshop and Aperture. I got them all. So the other day I asked myself, which ones do you really use? That'll be a key to figure out which ones are the best in your opinion. And the one, one that I use almost every day is called Magic Bullet Photo Looks hmm. 1.5. It doesn't get the kind of press that a lot of the other ones do. But I'm telling you what, this thing is amazing. Awesome. If you If you take the time to learn the interface, you can do almost anything you want to a photograph right inside Photolooks. And the presets are awesome. And I've got a couple that I'm just in love with that I use sort of as a starting point for a lot of my pictures. But man, oh man, this thing is crazy. And if you get some of the add-on packs and really make it nice, it's it's not the cheapest thing in the world. It's 199 bucks. But I got to tell you, I think it's money very well spent. If you're a photographer or a video person, you can take advantage of this. And the, the, this comes from a video point of view. So you may not understand when you see some of the presets what they mean. But if you start playing with them and more importantly, learn how to break down what they each what each piece of it, the preset does, you can modify the presets, make your own presets. I've taken their presets and made my own from them where I've kind of modified them to go where I want. But you can do lens effects. You can get a lens baby kind of effect out of this deal. You can do Jeez. just – it is crazy how good it is. It's at uh, Red Giant Software, and I think it's a friend of uh, of our, yeah, our good friend Stu, Alex's. Yeah, yeah. Stu, yeah, Stu mesh with – Yeah, Stu, Stu is the uh, – both Ron and I know Stu. Well. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, do you do? You, have you played with this? It's awesome. It, Isn't it, it is cool? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so it's. I always feel like how far it's come since Stu was well, playing right. when it's, we were both been in our lab. While and it doesn't get we, we kind of we gloss over it. But yeah, it's. Uh, I feel bad that I haven't tried this out yet. Oh, it's awesome. It well, I'm just going to warn you. If you do, you're going to want it. All right. Do they have a yeah. they have a trial downloadable? Yes, they do. You have a trial version from RedGiantSoftware.com, and it's one ninety nine for the current one point five. If you bought one of the older versions, you can upgrade for ninety nine. I have absolutely no relationship with these people. I've never even met Stu, but I have 
talked to him on Twitter once. But other than that, I got to say it's it's a great program. I, I really think people should take a look at it. You know, like I said, I've got every one of these that you can buy, and this is one that I use all the time. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Scott. And you have another one. Um, you know, I just want to I want to kind of pimp this book I just read called Nature Photography Photo Workshop by Nat Colson. It's really good. Um, it's from Wiley. And uh, disclosure, Nat has written a couple of posts for me at PhotoFocus. I've never met him, couldn't pick him out of the lineup. But, um, you know, I read through this book this week, and I was, I, I was just going to skim it, and I, I just couldn't put it down. It is, it's a photo workshop in a book, literally. It's a nature photography workshop. If you're into that kind of thing, Nat Colson, C-O-A-L-S-O-N, check it out. Very cool. All right. And Alex Lindsay, what is your pick? So uh, just to follow up, I'm going to do one, I'm going to do two picks because we got two picks. But they're, they're little picks. See, everybody got two picks. I want to play. Um, we have a trend. Yeah, exactly. So one of them is to, to follow up on what I was talking about. If you're getting into, if you're looking for an entry level recorder and you're getting into, uh, um, you know, doing video, I kind of br- breeze by it, and I know I'll get some emails about what did you just say when you were saying it like a hundred miles an hour. Uh, and um, the handy recorder from H4N by Zoom is just a great. For the price, it's a great uh, little recorder to get started with to allow you to, you know, get that second input. It's got quarter inch and and XLR inputs, and so you can. Um, uh, it gives you the option to put professional microphones uh, that you can record separately. Now that's going to go with another program called um, Pluralize by Singular Software, and what that does is it basically will resync your audio with your video automatically in Final Cut and Premiere mm. and so on and so forth. Uh, it is magic. <laughs> so uh, so those two together um, will, if you're getting into video and you want to do what's called, you know, dual, you know, dual recording, uh, which is what you really want to do if you're going to start doing this with your still cameras because it's, their audio is really bad. Um, the, uh, if you, if you want to get into those two, th- that little pair uh, will improve your audio uh, pretty dramatically. So definitely check it out. Uh, I think that the Zoom is about two ninety nine and uh, I think the singular software. I'm not sure exactly how much it is. I think it's, but it's not very expensive. So, um, uh, definitely uh, check that out. Very cool. All right, and that that's it. No more. Uh, the only other other one that I had was you know, someone. I, I this is the constant thing that people ask me about is which bag I use because I never did a video and there's a new one. I got I got an upgrade to the same bag I have, which is the DR uh, the the Kata DR four sixty seven I. You stole my pick, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Did I really? You did. That's all right. That's all right. Okay. We have enough picks on the show. So. Yeah, I know. So, so the uh, so the the, the the change that they made uh, to the new one is that number one is there's a little loop at the very top uh, that you can now. One of the problems that I had was my tripod would want to fall kind of sideways because it wasn't secured at the top, and they they fixed that. And the second thing is is that you can now in the lens compartment below you can actually zip the the separator, unzip the separator. So if you have a big lens. You can actually put it in here by, by opening it up. It used to be if you had a really long lens, you, you wouldn't be able to put it in, in your camera. And now you can. And here's the thing that it does. is it, it's, it's a backpack that is small enough that no one asks me about whether I'm going to check it or not. Um, I can pack you know, an enormous amount of stuff into it. I'm pretty sure that the inside is larger than the outside. I'm not sure how that works, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> that's awesome. And and you know, and it's and it because I mean, I you know, typically I'll have like you know my my 5D with an R1, uh, Noto Ninja R1 with the eight millimeter, the twenty eight millimeter. I'm um, usually a seventy to twenty four, a usually a Canon like a little Canon handy cam uh, as a backup, and then I'll have uh, an extra battery uh, for my computer. I'll have a seventeen inch laptop, a eleven inch 
uh, Air and an iPad. Jeez. Wow. And and then I'll have a bunch of little, you know, a bag with some wires and um, and a couple energy bars. And, some serious know, back pain. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> exactly. got, it goes over both shoulders. It's a good workout when you're walking through the airport. Um, and you just make sure that you don't hand it to anyone at the uh, at at in um, when you're checking in because they will make you check it because it's forty pounds. <laughs> so anyway, um, so the uh, uh, but it's it, I, I just can't believe how much it also has like a little uh, trolley like the insert trolley little bat thing which I didn't know what that was for like I didn't really use it very much because I, I didn't have a trolley. <laughs> So I didn't have a trolley, so I never used it. And then, and then suddenly there was one moment where one of the DPs I was working with grabbed his. Everybody that I work with has one of these. It's crazy. And he slid it over the, the you know, the, the handle you pull out of your, your, your carry-on? Yeah. He slid it over that, and then it's just sitting there right on the, you know, just right up against it. And, um, and you had an epiphany. <laughs> I wanted to cry. I was like, I can't believe I've been using this bag for years, and I never used that little... Little slide. little slide. My my favorite thing about their bags is that the yellow interior makes it easy to find little black bits. Yep, well, that's cool. It, it that's also cool. makes it easy to know that you left it open. Yeah, that's there. You go. <laughs> All right, Ron Brinkman, what is your pick? Uh, just just a quick one. It's um, I you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were complaining about how much they had just spent on getting a replacement battery for their Canon camera. And uh, I realized that they had gone to a local camera store and purchased a Canon-branded battery. I was like, no! So my pick is eBay for batteries. Um, I know some people get a little paranoid about it, but if you go on there and you find a a vendor that's selling the battery that you need and just look for somebody that has a lot of uh, good reviews on them, and I mean, you will find vendors that have like tens tens of thousands of reviews saying that they are a good vendor. So you really, you know, you're not taking too much of a chance there. You know, I, I the Canon for my for my Canon S95 point and shoot, as soon as I got it, I got a couple spare batteries on there. If you buy them, list price is $60 a piece. Even on Amazon, they're about 20 bucks a piece. I got two of them on eBay, including shipping, no tax, for six dollars and fifty nine cents, and they have been perfectly fine. What? <laughs> yep. Jeez. You, you could buy like what two well, dozen. And that's the at thing, that price. And, I, and, and I've been buying batteries like this for years, and I will occasionally get one that's kind of a stinker and doesn't seem to hold a charge. But you know, it cost me four dollars. Yeah. So I got no problem saying, "Yep, that one didn't work," and throwing it away. And, and it's, it's my fun. my fear, Ron, would be, yeah, it cost me four dollars. But if I'm like saying like Africa, I'm like Alex, I'm in Africa somewhere, and I got a four dollar battery with me, and it just decides to act like it's worth what I paid for it. Yep. Absolutely. I'm screwed. You know? I don't care. I, it cost me you know, less than $4, so I have four of them. <laughs> Redundancy. <laughs> or eight of them. I mean, you know. It's, nice. It's, it's, yeah. So, and and on, I've, I've had Canon batteries go bad on me after a while, too. So Yeah. Yeah. I, that's true. I don't, I'm not convinced that, yeah, I'm sure the quality control is slightly lower, but, you know, battery technology for this kind of stuff is pretty well figured out. So. That's cool. Uh, That's that's a good tip. I like that. I may have to go buy half a dozen batteries right now. Yeah. Has anybody's anybody's seen a good multi-battery charger? Mm. Oh, no, I have not. That would be nice to have something that could charge, you know, the the stuff for my point-and-shoot and and for my SLR. Well, that or if I've got four or five batteries, I'd love to be able to charge them in a group overnight rather than, you know, getting up every two hours. Sounds like a new product idea to me. There you go. (laughs) Build it, and they will come. All right. Thanks a lot, Ron. 
All right, uh, my pick was Kata Photography Bags, but of course, Mr. Alex Lindsay took all the wind out of my sail. <laughs> so oh, really? I, I just want to reiterate that those bags are cool. Uh, I'll, and, I'll second that because that's what I've got. Although they appear to have discontinued my favorite one, so so they have a they I have a crap load of them up there. So you pick another one, right? Yes. All right, guys, we are at the end of this week in photo two hundred. Yeah. 200 we made it all the way through 200 episodes uh so thanks to you know first i want to thank you to the listeners for, for the, all those as i know we have a number of listeners that have been with us since episode number one which i was I, I don't think i was on that one that was the show was started you know what before we end this show let's let's end it with a little nostalgia scott and alex you guys started this thing well the show was false so, so yeah a false start actually i think <laughs> so, two false starts right give us the history of this week in photo and how it started so I, you know, we, I started. Well, first it was Frederick and, and Ron and I start did two two whole recordings that for whatever reason failed. This was back before I did a yes. lot of did the same redundancy, and and this was back when Skype would fail out. And those were the best episodes ever. They, they were amazing. <laughs> they were raw. <laughs> I can't say everything. I mean, I laughed. I cried. It was it was amazing. And that was done the summer before we actually started. Uh, Twip, and then um, and then Scott and I started talking about it, and then we did it. I think didn't the first one? Didn't we do the first one at MacWorld, Scott? Uh, I think we did. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think we did the first one. You two and Steve, wasn't it? Yeah, and with Steve, and yeah, Steve, Steve. Well, no, wait, yeah, actually, we we either did one or talked about doing one, and then I had a contractual conflict that put me out for like a year, and right. then we then we did it. Right. Yeah, yeah and so it was it was. We, we did it back world and Steve Simon. Steve yeah. Simon was wandering around, and I said, "You want to do a podcast?" He said, "What's the podcast?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Steve. <laughs> sure. And, and, no, first he'd say, "Sure." What's a podcast? We, <laughs> and we grabbed him and put him up on the stage, and the entire show, he just looked like a deer caught in the headlights. <laughs> <laughs> Poor yeah, that, Steve. that was the year we had a state. We had a we had a big stage at, at MacWorld, and, yeah, uh, and me, I was trying to fill time. I was just like, "I gotta go. Yeah, let's let's do a let's do a podcast." And um. And uh, and then it just uh, and then it grew. You know it, that was back in the day when you you know when you released a podcast and it would go straight to like because we had other podcasts running it would go straight to number one or two in the uh, tech area and number you know top ten in the in the general area and you'd get lots of people you know really quickly just by releasing mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And um and we've been you know we've come a long way. We've come that was long. like three years ago. That we actually did the first show, right? Is it three years old? This thing is three. Good grief! Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the one that the successful first show was three years ago at MacWorld right. or so, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and then and then I did the show with you for a year. Yep. And then I was replaced by Frederick Van Johnson. Yes, you were. And then apparently, Alex, you replaced yourself with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you, we don't use the term replace. We use the term outsource, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, the, the, um, the, uh, you know, and the thing is, is that now we're at, at 200 and the new studio is going up. We're, gonna, we're about to start jumping deeply into video uh, yeah. as far as supporting um, TWIP and, uh, and a lot more. So it's going to be I, I, the, next, uh, the next 200 episodes, I think, are pretty exciting. Now, you know, there was an end to even MASH, I'm just saying. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never. We, we will always be here while there are people out there shooting bad photos. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, thanks to all you guys, and also a huge thanks to all the people that are behind the scenes that make this show possible. I mean, 
Alex, your your crew over at Pixel Core, if it weren't for those guys, we would never see the light of day on the show. That's it, the business. It would, you know, yeah, would not have... John and 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 the rest of the team over here uh, just does a great um, does a great job, and we have great notes, uh, yep. great notes, and and uh, great organization uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce, uh, who is now getting into interviews. You you know the, the David Zeiser awesome. interview. Awesome. He's doing interviews now, and we've got Ernest, uh, who is doing show notes as well as organizing our meetups and other events. So, and we, FYI, Bruce does the show notes for PhotoFocus too. Look at that, Bruce is all over the place. Look at that. So and he's really good at it. He is. He's he's magical. In fact, I think the show notes for this episode are done already. <laughs> he's he's that fast and that good. But uh, you know, other podcasters out there listening, you can't have him. So he's uh, he's photo focused in this week photo. Uh, but yeah, so there's a lot of people behind the scenes that just make this thing go. A lot of people think it's easy. You just record a bunch of people talking and put it online, but it's not quite that simple. There's a lot of moving parts to this thing. And it takes a lot of smart people to pull it off every single week tirelessly. And it's so. it's the every single week part that makes it hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It I mean, never goes away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just the fact that you know having that team has made such a massive difference in in the you know consistency and, and quality and so on and so forth. So we yep. And luckily, the quality has been on a up and to the right ramp. So we've been getting better and better and better. You know, every yes. every week it seems like we we ratchet it up just a little bit more until we'll be and ultimately we'll be flawless, you know. That's the plan. So cool. Well, thanks everyone. And uh Scott Bourne, if people are looking for you as if they couldn't find you, where where would you like to direct them to? Google my name. I'm sort of like a rash. I'm everywhere. You can't get rid of me. Um, <laughs> you know, basically, uh, photofocus.com, my new site with Rich Harrington, 3exposure.com. And I'm looking to find somebody who hopefully will follow me on Twitter. I can't get to 100,000. Twitter. Oh, get out of here. Oh, you can't get to 100,000. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been struggling. <laughs> I'm, I'm climbing that ladder because, you know, I, I don't have a. I should have done something cool like hire a pretty girl to be the face of my Twitter account. Then there I'd have go. a million. Yeah, I want to see you get to a million. I mean, it's that's, you, got, that's, you, you got to get up to the Oprah sort of, you know, level there. Come on. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, me and Oprah, we're tight. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> All right, Aaron Mailer, where are you at online? Um, my blog, halfpress.com, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S.com, or on Twitter is twitter.com slash halfpress. Perfect. All right, Ron Brinkman. Uh, easiest thing is just on Twitter, Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. Awesome. Two ends. Don't forget the second end. Two Please ends. don't. I think that was a misspelling, Ron. I think it's really <laughs> supposed to be one <laughs> I one, think one that I have to live with. When yes. they created that last name, somebody had a stutter or something. Yeah, <laughs> that stuck key on the keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Well. Uh, Alex Lindsay, where are you at? Uh, you can find me on the Twitter, Alex Lindsay, all one word. Or on the Google, right? On the Google. All right, and if you like to if you like to keep up with everything in the Twip universe, you can just head over to thisweekinphoto.com, and there you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter page, and so much more. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash frederickvan. And with that, for the 200th time, it's time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. 
produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. The show's content contributor is Eric Horton. 